Hello and welcome to 2024's Lore Beards and an Andy who isn't coughing like mad. Thank the gods. Oh, what a new year I had indeed. What a Christmas I had as well. You don't want to know about it, but there was definitely a visit from Nurgle and he sat upon me. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. It he didn't ask for good. consent or anything. What a no, jerk. he didn't. He was, what a jerk, eh? Right, so we have a very big topic today. This is going to be the Lorebeard's take on an introduction to Warhammer Fantasy in its entirety. And it's fair to say this one's pretty huge. We have a lot to discuss, many things to cover. So that being the case, we have a couple of caveats, a couple of changes to how we normally do things for this single episode alone. So be aware of that as we go. Uh, we're going to start off with a quick mention about our super chats and our cheers and i'll pass over to the good old sotek to discuss that one yeah so when we broke down the amount of topics we have to talk about today and the amount of time we have to do it it ends up being something like five minutes per topic which for us is going to be really hard <laughs> so uh in the in the in the hope of getting through this in a timely fashion we're going to save all the super chats and the bits and everything until the end so we're going to get through all the topic, hopefully in about two to two and a half hours. And then at the end, we're going to go back through all of those and catch up with them. So, you know, we really, really appreciate it. We love the sport. We really uh, appreciate it. It helps us do everything we got to do, keep food on our table and our family spend all that stuff. But uh, we'll, we'll do all of it at the end um, as just kind of one big thing, kind of answer questions and stuff there. So if you do have any questions as we go, don't hesitate in posting them, but do be aware we won't be tackling them until the end of the episode because we have a lot that we want to cover here. And if somebody's coming along for the first time and wanting to understand about what Warhammer is, what the various factions are, how the different species work together, they're not wanting to have all the interruptions all the way through it. So we're breaking with our standard format just for this week, just so that we can ensure that we get through all of this because... Oh, by the gods, do we have a lot to get through today. So shall we uh, get started or should we wait for a couple of minutes for everyone to gather? No, no, we should go. <laughs> I think we should go as well. <laughs> um, if anyone arrives late, I'm just sorry to say we're going regardless. That's the VOD, you're adults. <clears throat> <clears throat> Warhammer Fantasy. By the Lawbeards, Andy Law, a lawmaster of Sodex. This is our introduction to all things Warhammer Fantasy. We're going to start off with where the heck did Warhammer come from in the first place? We're going to take you back to the early 80s when there was a whole host of beardy fellows like ourselves who had many miniatures, many of which came from history, many of which came from our favourite fantasy settings, most particularly from The Lord of the Rings and from, more broadly, the eternal champion with Michael Moorcock. Citadel Miniatures, for example, had an entire range of male Nabonians. They would become what Warhammer later calls High Elves and Dark Elves. <clears throat> and Games Workshop were, made a set of rules called Warhammer where you could use all of your miniatures no matter where they came from they might be historical miniatures they might be fantasy miniatures you could pull them all together slap them down on the battlefield and have yourself a game so we could have ourselves our orcs and our goblins going off against romans and having a good old jolly time this was brilliant the rules were relatively simple they were to the point and they didn't really have a world attached to it but warhammer had started this developed quickly, and by third edition of Warhammer, where the rules had been significantly expanded, the Warhammer world was now a thing. 
And the Warhammer world was everything that you've ever heard from fantasy, plus everything you've ever heard from history, plus myth. And it pulled all of that together into one great whole. And it made a world that looked like the real world, at least to a degree. It was a reflection of the real world. So if you wanted to play your fantasy Romans, well, there was a place called Tilia in the Warhammer world, which was fantasy Italy. Woo-woo! Away we nice go. And nice, nice and simple. And, simple. <laughs> and the Warhammer world started to have at least some depth added to it, but not much. By third edition of Warhammer, we had a world. We had all of the different species that you could have in it. You had all of the different armies and factions laid out, but it wasn't really fully developed. That came with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition. When Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition came along, it took all of the big different parts of what Warhammer offered and tried to make sense of it. So we had ourselves knights facing off against gunpowder, facing off against magic. A world needed to be built to make that all make sense. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was the first real big attempt to make that happen. And the first edition of that game became pretty damn famous because it was a lovely mixture of horror and humor and everything that we all recognized. One of the great charms and one of the great entry points of Warhammer is it's completely accessible because everything you know about fantasy or about the real world history is in Mm. there somewhere. Meaning that no matter who you are walking in for the first time, you can immediately go, I like such and such from a particular fantasy or historical setting and you will find something like that in Warhammer. One big change happened with the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and that was the game's focus because that game focused on one place in the entire Warhammer world, a place called the Empire. And as we'll discuss far later, the Empire ends up becoming for many the core setting for the entire Warhammer world because of this. Mm. As we move on to later editions of Warhammer Fantasy Battle, the material that was created for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was often lifted and ported over, and there was an absolute wealth of it for the old world. That's the big European continent equivalent that had been created for Warhammer and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And that wealth of material meant that the vast majority of the factions started there and then slowly spread out from that point. And most of the novels were set there. Most of the initial games were set there. Indeed, almost everything that Games Workshop would create and then later the licensees for Warhammer and the licensees are other companies who create material for Warhammer, send it over to Games Workshop and say, is this okay? And they say, yes, give us all your money. Um, An example of that will be later editions of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay that weren't made by Games Workshop. They were licensed instead by other companies like Green Ronin, um, an American company that made the second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, or Mm. Fantasy Flight Games, an American company that made the third edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. So licensees would make a host of games. They would all be approved. And then as time passed on, we'd get computer games as well, some of which Mm -hmm. were enormously big. Games Workshop, however, over the course of its eight editions of Warhammer Fantasy Battle, eventually decided that they were going to bring the game to an end. And they reached the point of the end times. We're going to be discussing that to some length at the end of this particular section. Yeah, <sighs> The whole point at the end of it as we go, world goes boom! 
um, the end times, and they brought the Warhammer to an end. The great central conflict of the Warhammer world, which we will be discussing, comes to a conclusion, and they bring out a new game called Age of Sigmar. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout the course of those eight editions of Warhammer, we got ourselves a variety of other games, including games such as Man of War, which was naval battles in the Warhammer world. We got ourselves Warhammer Quest, which was dungeon battles oh. in the Warhammer world. Hello, Warhammer Quest. Um, Warhammer Quest was a great game. Um, I, I love Warhammer Quest dearly. There was also games made by other companies, like, for example, Battle Masters or Hero Quest. All of these were also set inside the Warhammer world. There was a host of card games created as well, all of which were set inside the Warhammer yep, Fantasy world. Fantasy Flight did the card. Yeah, the yeah they did. Um, TCG, there, yep. There was some alternative versions of the Warhammer world built for games like Blood Bowl, where it was sort of like the Warhammer world. It still used the same maps and the same factions doing the same things, but it was really quite different. Um, And you'll find that this multiverse aspect to the Warhammer world, we had a Blood Bowl version, you had a Warhammer version, and then you sort of had computer game versions, and then you had book versions and novels, Mm -hmm. hundreds of novels that were created for it. They all added extra details, some of which conflicted, some of which didn't, across the editions. And you'll find that over the course of time, Warhammer became much less of one single setting, but instead an enormously deep setting with lots of different takes on lots of different aspects of it. Meaning that each game as it came out took the bits that it needed, focused on those bits and examined them and took them further. So the needs of, for example, the new game that's about to come out, Warhammer Old World, are quite different to, say, the fourth edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which uh, I helped put together as the producer for the game. So we've got all of those games. The Warhammer world comes to an end. And everyone thought, that's it. Warhammer's over. We're now moving on. It's going to be Age of Sigmar. But. That didn't occur. It was it was too strong to stay down. <laughs> it was indeed. It's because too horrible to die, check past. <laughs> the licenses continued, and in particular, one license, and it's not the sole license that was responsible for this, but I am going to focus on this. Total War Warhammer was enormously popular. What it did was it took the Total War, let's say, model, where we Mm -hmm. took ourselves historical armies and we pitched them against other historical armies and allowed you to play through battles from the past. And it ported over that idea straight to Warhammer and said, who doesn't want to throw high elves at a fantasy version of Germany? Woohoo! Who doesn't want to have big chaos demons doing chaos stuff? This is going to be great fun. And the game wasn't just big, it was huge. Warhammer refused to die and like an undead skeleton it just rose up from the grave its popularity continued other licenses did other things for it vermintide for example an enormously awesome game that's set in ubersreich in the empire which we've discussed already and it was mm-hmm. also set near the end times when the world blew up that game was great other games for warhammer also came out including warhammer fantasy roleplay a new edition as well And Warhammer wasn't just popular, it was very popular. Which is where we find ourselves today, where Games Workshop that had abandoned Warhammer and decided to move on from it have returned to it one more time with Warhammer the Old World. Warhammer the Old World is, as we know, just about to come out. It's just, what, next week now? Yeah, this is yep. Yeah, totally. It's just about to come out, and Warhammer the Old World takes place approximately 200, 250 years before the world blows up. 
So we've got ourselves a whole new game about to start in the Warhammer world. So it's a perfect time for us to take a deep dive into what the Warhammer world is, what the various factions are, and most importantly, where did it all begin, Sotek? Yes. So thank you, Andy, for the amazing intro. Uh, that uh, For off the cuff, that's amazing. You may have thought that was a script. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> the only script is his brain, <laughs> which is... And very, very impressive. So, uh, coming into the Warhammer world, there are a couple of things that have to be established for understanding what you're looking at with the world. And like Andy said, if we go back to the beginning, and once again, we're going to be touching lightly on these, I will mm -hmm. give recommendations as we go through on other uh, live streams we've done that you can go watch to get further information. But before everything of the world that it is now, much like ours, you go back to roughly 10,000 years before the quote-unquote modern age, uh, you have the arrival of a group called the Old Ones, and they are an alien spacefaring race that sailed in on silver starships. Uh, so these giant uh, machines that they use to come to the planet, and for reasons that are not that are disagreed upon, from addition to ambition, and also kind of left vague, they look at the Warhammer world and go, "Ah, yes, this is perfect. This planet is." a critical piece of some great plan, some mysterious series of objectives that this alien race who as much fun as it is to speculate about much about them are ultimately unknowable. They are beyond what we could imagine because they were at that point where to them, there's no separation between science and technology. Uh, their understanding of space and time is vastly different and what they even look like. We don't really know because there's like a whole bunch of different mysteries and answers to those questions, which is part of the fun, but they come down to the planet and they start to mess with it a lot. They mess with the whole solar system. They change the alignment of the planets. They change how long, how close they are to the sun, how long it takes them to rotate. Uh, they change the side, the way the continents look, instead of it being like a Pangea supercontinent, they break it up and make it more like our world. And they start creating a bunch of different races raising up races that already existed to be more sentient or sapient, however you want to look at it, and giving them gifts of civilization to make them stronger, which is where we get the creation of many different races that we're going to talk about a little later. But the main race that they create uh, that are kind of the custodians, the first race that rises up are the Lizardmen, uh, which are kind of what they sound like on the tin being a great uh, uh to an extent yeah, most of them are amphibians <laughs> you know, yes yeah it's, it's definitely a very layman's uh understanding of what a lizard is uh, totally. <laughs> but uh you have the lizardmen rise up which are actually not one race but a collection of four races uh, uh sub races you could look at where you have the uh big guys in charge which are the slon mage priests and the slon are quite literally these large uh fat toads that have giant heads and their limbs are relatively uh skinny because they just float around but they're so smart that in a world that relies on magic so you would think there's not things like psychic powers if you're aware from like 40k no the slaughter full-on psychic to a, like a crazy terrifying degree they don't even need magic to do it they just do it because they're mm -hmm. awesome like that and they are meant to enact this great plan. Beneath them, you have your Saurus, which the Saurus legions are your warriors. They were meant to be perfect killing machines and ultimate guardians who don't worry about anything outside of jobs of war and protection. You had your Skinks, which are your... Uh, they do pretty much everything else. They're your scouts. They're your artisans. They're your priests. They're your uh, administrators. They take care of all the day-to-day -day tasks of running an empire 
and everyone that has needed to do that. And then last are your croc scores, everybody's favorite big cuddly di- dinosaur crocodile things who are lumbering uh, very large creatures that are mostly just construction workers. Uh, their job is to carry around big blocks and they are smart enough to follow orders. And it's implied that they, some of them can, uh, they, they have a very, 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 very simple language, but they, everybody adores them and they're very protective of their skinks. And they live in what is known as Lustria, which is basically South America from our world, except for a lot scarier. Um, very, very scary. Don't forget uh, the Southlands. Yes. They're also in the Southlands and there's, they're scattered in a couple Africa. Of yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and granted, we will touch on the Southlands a bit later, but Southlands very unexplored. Uh, we'll talk about that more kind of later on. But uh, the Lizardmen are primarily focused on Lustria, which uh, they are one of the few races that kind of have a continent to themselves. They're not the only people there. Uh, there are other races that are involved. But Lustria, it's it's go back in time to when the dinosaurs roamed the, roamed the Earth and make it way scarier way worse the dinosaurs are a lot bigger all the insects are gigantic there's crazy diseases carnivorous plants everything you could possibly imagine in like the worst vietnam hell nightmares is lustria and there's also a race of dinosaur people there an absolute joy so we've got ourselves the established beginning of the core conceit of warhammer we're about to as the lizard man and the old ones come to an end hit the core conflict the Warhammer offers. There's an awful lot of discussion about what is Warhammer. We're about to give one of the core answers to that. The Lizardmen and the old ones that had put them in place ravaged across the world. War was brought to the Warhammer world for the first time when the old one's plan was aggressively put into place. There Mm. were other species on the Warhammer world to begin with. Most notably, I'll bring up two, just because they will come again later. One of which is the dragons. We will discuss them a little more later. And the other of which is the dragon ogres. Now, dragons, you'll immediately understand. Dragon ogres look a bit like dragons without wings, but with the top half of a gigantic muscular ogre, a little bit like a centaur. So... Mm. War has hit the Warhammer world. But the core conceit isn't really war. For all war is in the title, the core conceit of much of what Warhammer tackles is the civilization that the old ones bring. And then later on, the species that carry on the old ones legacy continue facing off against complete dissolution, chaos and destruction. And that is what's about to occur as we move from this era of high technology. When the old ones have come and their silver ships have completely repurposed the Warhammer world, changed it to their own ideals, and posed themselves a new set of species called the Lizardmen to control everything and elevated a host of other species, species that will later be called elves, dwarves, humans, halflings, ogres, a variety of others were all elevated up and granted language, abilities, and technologies that they didn't have before. And then the great catastrophe occurs. And this is another event, much like the old ones themselves, that is shrouded in mystery. But the most important part that we need to understand to get this one into our heads is that there isn't just one world that we need to worry about here, the Warhammer world. The material component of the Warhammer world is one thing, but on the other side, we have what in 40k is called the warp, what the elves call the aether, what will one day be called simply the realm of chaos. And that is 
the other side. Consider this the great immaterial realm where thoughts and dreams and emotions not only gather, but form. There's lots of theories as to why the chaos gods awoke inside the Aether. There's a lot of discussion as to whether it was on purpose, whether it was by design, whether it was an entire mistake, whether it was the sentient species that had been elevated by the cold-blooded old ones who didn't understand that emotions would cause the Aether to become something new. Doesn't matter. What matters is that gods arose within the Aether and some of them did not like the material realm at all. And then the great catastrophe occurred because the old ones had arrived in polar gates at the north and the south of the planet. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Warhammer Fantasy is despite the name, there is a significant amount of science fiction to the setting, a crazy amount of science fiction, which you may have noticed considering we literally started with spacefaring aliens. So as Andy said, there were these two big portals at the North and South Pole. You can kind of think of them as like giant uh, stargates where they were basically designed to allow faster than light travel. And uh, they were great and awesome, and they were huge. Like, we're talking about continent-sized constructions floating around in space. And they blow up. We don't know exactly why they blow up, but they blow up. And their implosion, explosion, however you want to look at it, was so bad that it ripped the fabric of reality apart. And the Warhammer fantasy world should have blown, just been dead right then. But thanks mm -hmm. to a series of actions by the Lizardmen and several other races, that particular crisis was stymied a little bit to where the planet was not just instantly evaporated, but instead now got to fight. Because fun fact, Warhammer Fantasy is functionally a post-apocalyptic uh, because the Polar Gates blow up. A lot of technology is lost in that instant. Uh, a lot of the greatest and wisest minds among the oldest of races are lost in that instant. And it basically becomes a horrible fight for survival because the realms of chaos bleeding into the reality or what you can think of as the mortal realms is very bad um it's kind of like a cancerous infection from another universe coming into this universe and it wants to make everything like itself and it's really bad for the things that are already there it's an invasive species to the greatest yeah. extent so the great catastrophe occurs. That is the implosion, explosion of the gates to north and south poles. And the gates, as they once stood, which were portals through to other places in the galaxy and beyond, now are gates directly through to what is going to be called the realm of chaos. And this is a realm of pure magic that is antithetical to the material realm. So the magic takes on material form and it seeps across the world. And at this point, it seeps in such an extraordinary amount. It allows creatures from the Aether, which should normally not be able to manifest at all in the material realm, to not only manifest, to, to wreak absolute havoc. Now, these creatures, these spirits, end up being called demons. And they are very much aligned to the great chaos powers which wish to see the end of the world. And these dark chaos powers that lie beyond inside the Aether start to wreak havoc across the world. And you think, well, hey, there's the old ones around. Yeah, they'll be able to stop them. No, because the great catastrophe, for whatever reason, wiped them out. All of them. Not a single old one survives this event. It is horrific. 
whether by design, whether they fled, whether they all just simply died in an attempt to try and keep their great plan that they had for this world in place. Nobody can be certain. All that can be said for clear is that the old ones were gone and all of their servitor species were left attempting to deal with the absolute horror of war that was left behind. And this is where it all begins. This is when, in truth, Warhammer begins. We are about to start eternal conflict that lasts for about 8,000 years. The wars will spike, the wars will drop, they will spike again. In particular, one cycle of wars will come to dominate all aspects of the world. And that is chaos's repeated attempts to destroy everything. As they come out from the chaos gates and the great gods of chaos themselves, who we'll be detailing in a little bit of time, do everything in their power to destroy everything. Eventually, they come up with different plans to do this using mortal representatives, using great demons of enormous power. And eventually we reach the end times, which is when Games Workshop decided that the Warhammer world came to an end and they finally allowed chaos to destroy the world. Warhammer, the great setting that we're about to discuss with all of its different factions, is effectively 8,000 years of the conflict between civilization, the material realm, order against chaos and the dissolution and the destruction of all things. There is one thing I'm going to add here before we do continue on with those, and that's um, a somewhat of a misnomer that many people use when they discuss Warhammer. It's not about good and evil. Good and evil is a very simplistic term. Many of the factions that are dubbed as good guys in the Warhammer world are anything but. What they are are those who yeah. stand against chaos and the dissolution of the world. Equally, many that are evil aren't so much evil as just forces of nature or just destruction made manifest or someone that has just got a plan. Now, there are there are evil people. There are good people, but the factions themselves, those words very rarely make a great deal of sense when you look into the depth of them. It works relatively well for the battle game if you just look at the battle game, because the battle game is generally a bunch of good guys killing a bunch of other people, often a bunch of bad guys, or a bunch of bad guys kill a bunch of other people, often a bunch of bad guys. Um, but when it comes to the role-playing game or any of the games that... Uh, that use any depth you tend to find that it very quickly evaporates the whole concept of good and evil but the concept of disorder and chaos against the order and civilization that it's attempting to destroy is pretty much core to the setting no matter which version of the game you play or no matter which type of game whether it's Mordheim which is a game about effectively a whole city getting destroyed about 500 years before the eventual end of the world, or whether it's a game like Man of War, which is just fleets destroying themselves or attempting to not do so. Destruction versus order is at the core of all things. Yes. So with the arrival of chaos, we get a couple of big names that are worth uh, touching on very, very briefly that you probably are familiar with, even if you've never seen Warhammer before, which are the big four. Uh, so there are four primary big bads uh, among the forces of chaos which are the four dark gods that go by a lot of different epithets uh but uh they are corn the blood god the lord of rage uh you have nurgle the god of disease pestilence and despair zinch the god of change magic and hope and then slanesh who is the god of excess 
and all things uh, civilized and painful and pleasurable. And depraved. And depraved. And mm. they are the four primary powers. There are a pretty much infinite amount of powers beneath them um, of different various levels. Some of them being like very like local minor powers or even country spanning big powers. But those four are the primary big bads who exist. They're so big and bad that they exist in several different universes all at the same time. Uh, yeah. Being it's actually fair to say, I'm sorry. It's, it's actually fair to say that the four great powers of chaos um, are the big bad guys of Warhammer. Everybody else is against them. Even what, even the factions that many perceive to be forces of evil or destruction are pretty much pitched against the great powers of chaos, because the great powers of chaos seem to have only really one major goal in mind, the absolute annihilation of the world and everything that it stands for, where everybody on that world clearly might have an opinion against that. Um, so with that all in mind, it's probably about time for us to quickly move on to the world itself, because it's worth discussing its geography before we move into each of the factions so that you understand exactly the different terms that are used in the Warhammer world and what the Warhammer world is itself. Mm -hmm. um, I'll do a quick bit about the Warhammer world and its uh, galaxy, super short. Then I'll pass over to Sotek so we can discuss all the different continents. Um, loosely speaking, the Warhammer world is like our one, but not. The first big difference is that it's bigger. And I think this is something that you should probably always remember with Warhammer. Warhammer dials everything up to 11. And it does this on purpose. It's basically the real world plus one on everything. So it's bigger than the real world. It's got a longer year than the real world with 400 days rather than a mere 365. Each day is slightly longer than the real world. The sun that it orbits around is slightly bigger than the real world version where our sun is a particular size. Its solar system with all of the planets in it is larger than the real world solar system with 10 primary planets sitting inside it um, with several large gas giants. Um, the world is known. All of those planets have been set in motion by the old ones when they first arrived, whether that was 10, 15,000 years ago or whatever. They put those planets into perfect harmony with each other. So, for example, the orbit of the Warhammer world is exactly half the orbit of the next planet along, which is a third of the orbit of the next planet along, and so on. All of these planets move in perfect harmony with each other and occasionally make perfect string-lined conjunctions every 800 or 1,600 years. So, perfect conjunctions because of the perfect harmony of the spheres that fly out in space. Astrologer's wet dream. Yep. It is indeed an <laughs> astrologer's wet dream. So, um, from that, we then dial back to the world itself. And the world geography wise is very similar to the real world. And now you know why, because we discussed it in the beginning. It's because they wanted everybody that was moving into Warhammer for the first time who were using, perhaps with their first edition Warhammer models, maybe their. Uh, Viking models, or they might have been using their uh, Japanese models, or they might have been using their Indian models. They wanted to see those used in their Warhammer games, and they had an immediate translation for that because the Warhammer world looked like and was very similar to the real world. Yeah, so uh, I'm just going to work my way around the major continents and give a very, very brief little uh, note on each of them. Uh, we kind of already talked about it a fair bit, but there's Lustria, which is kind of the Warhammer equivalent of South America. It looks exactly like South America um, and it has kind of all the major land features, such as uh, the mountains that you would expect on the western side and uh, 
as far as the races that you'll find there, obviously the lizardmen are kind of the predominant species, but you'll find a lot of, uh, which we'll get more into depth on these races later when we get to the race section. You'll find that's where the Vampire Coast is, which has all of your favorite nautical-themed undead. We also have the Amazons, which are a very famous kind of subfaction of something that looks human but whether or not they're actually human is very debatable but you know amazonian warrior women who may or may not possess futuristic technology and may or may not be immortal and may or may not be just regular humans nobody knows um but there's also a lot of colonies uh from various places in the old world because colonialization happened though they were much less successful in the warhammer world uh at colonializing south america so you'll find like your equivalent of the spanish or the italians or the british or the germans or whatever uh, hanging around and you also have uh, races like the skaven uh, which are an underground ratman race that we'll talk about later and that's it's mostly jungles got a big set of plains in the far south which are the katachin plains which uh are the culture plains uh katachin <laughs> culture plains which <laughs> nobody talks about pretty much unless they're talking about culture writers which are <laughs> like big uh like think of them like ostriches that are way meaner um so that's lustria Moving up into uh, Nagarond. Nagarond is the equivalent of North America, uh, and it is very unexplored. Uh, it's not the most unexplored continent, but it's close. Uh, basically, the southern half of it, we don't really know a lot about it. Uh, we know that there are a couple of lizardmen kind of around like what you would consider Latin America, which is technically part of North America if you're looking at just the broader continents. Uh, but uh, we don't. As far as like the actual equivalent to like where the United States would be, we don't actually have a ton of information about who or what lives there. There is some older lore that has things that might say like, oh, there might be centaurs there or there might just be uh, early humans that lived around there. Uh, there definitely would be beastmen, lots of beastmen who we'll talk about in a little while. But just uh, bring that one up, just make sure we have the correction. It's Nagaroth, not Nagaroth. Nagaroth <laughs> is a like you can think of it as like a state within Nagaroth. Um, so Nagaroth is the continent. And then up at the top, kind of in the sort of equivalent of like the Great Lakes area in Canada, you have the Dark Elves. And the Dark Elves are kind of refugees from a civil war that wandered over here after they lost. And they have taken over and they're a super nasty race that we'll talk about later. And then north of them in the really when you start heading up into the more Arctic areas, you reach what are called the Chaos Waste, which is a very big change from the way our world compares to the warhammer world in that in our world when you kind of get above canada and stuff everything starts to just start to peter out and you start entering more just ice fields and ocean in the warhammer mm -hmm. world you enter what's known as the chaos waste which is a big landmass all around the top of the world uh that is very difficult to predict what the terrain is going to be like because chaos does not follow the laws of physics or nature so it might be a hellscape it might be a wasteland it might be a crazy forest it might be it could literally be almost anything your imagination could think of, and it's changing constantly. There is and no it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. You don't <laughs> want to live there. But a lot of people do live there. Uh, that's where the tribes of chaos live, which is a lot of humans of different cultures and tribes uh, who eke out a living is probably the most generous way to put it. And they're almost always nomadic because no one can set up permanently unless you're like a big spooky chaos lord. Uh, but that's essentially Nagaroth. So moving across the ocean, before we hit what we would see as the old world in our world, so like Europe and stuff, there is, you may notice, a continent in the way, which is Ulthuan, which is a giant island that is right smack in, for us, the equivalent of the Atlantic. And it's literally Atlantis. I like, it's it's fantasy Atlantis. The end. It is. <laughs> 
Uh, it used to be bigger. Uh, it used to be more of like a whole donut, uh, but a, about half of it sunk during that civil war I mentioned between the dark elves and the elves that live in Ulthuan now, which is the high elves. And this is the origin of the elves. It's a magical floating island. Uh, it is literally suspended by magic. There is nothing connecting it to the seafloor. It's literally just floating via magic which uh, as you may guess, that could be a little spooky because magic can be disrupted. So if something really bad were to happen, the island could sink, which would be not good. Definitely not like Atlantis. Yeah, de definitely. Yeah, no. The, the hubris <laughs> of the people that live there does not bite them in the ass at all. <laughs> uh, then we can hop across over to the Southlands just because the Southlands is very simple. Southlands is the equivalent of Africa. Um, mm -hmm. It is another one of those continents that is not super well explored. The southern half of it is almost entirely jungles and is inhabited by some lizardmen. There's a, a lot of skaven there, but the details are pretty scant. Uh, we don't know a lot. There's also said to be a lot of human tribes there. They've been there getting explored more in recent years, but the uh, what you would kind of think of as like African tribe-inspired humans is very, very light on the lore right now, um, but there's a lot of indications in the old world, which is coming out uh, soon, that they're actually starting to expand more into that, but we'll talk about yep. that another time. Uh, north of that, you enter the Great Desert, uh, also known as the Land of the Dead, which used to be kind of the cradle of human civilization. It used to be beautiful, bountiful lands with uh, lots of greenery and the the, the Great Vitae River, the River of Life, and it was super awesome. And then a lot of bad shit happened, and everybody died. <laughs> and it got turned into a horrible desert hellscape, and it's called the Land of the Dead because the only people who live there are dead, and the dead keep it. Uh, and that is where the Tomb Kings are, which are basically uh, Warhammer Egyptians. Um, and they're Warhammer all... undead Egyptians. Yes. So mummies, skeletons, uh, big statues that come to life, sphinxes, all the stuff you would imagine. And your, oh, favorite, your favorite action, goofy action, bolter porn type uh, <laughs> Egyptian monster movies are mm -hmm. in there. And then over to the side of the Southlands, kind of uh, on the... Um, I don't know what the best way to describe it, but on like that Western side, that part of Africa that kind of like comes out a bit. Peninsula that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is Araby, which is uh, kind of all that Warhammer really dedicates to a lot of Middle Eastern uh, type focuses, the lands of Arabia. Uh, it's very heavily inspired by like the thousand tales of Arabian nights uh, and a lot of those kind of myths and legends. So you got your genies, your flying carpets, uh, your, uh, your jinn, your spirits of the desert. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it is another one of those things that Games Workshop is kind of like drawn away from, but it's starting to go more toward. Um, and uh, it's got pretty much all of your favorite things like camel riders and some really cool inventive gunpowder weaponry. And the people who live there are a fascinating uh, group of cultures, a lot of different desert tribes, as well as established cities along the coast. Um, there's also like some really nasty pirates that live uh, just off the sea there, the legendary Corsairs of Araby. And uh, they have a lot of really cool magic. They have a lot of really cool technology. And they have a really fun theme around the whole, like, they had a big rise of technology and then some really bad wars happened and they kind of declined. But they're hanging in there. Uh, heading north from there, we go into the Badlands, which the Badlands are kind of a bonus. Um, the equip Like, for our world, it would be what we understand as the Middle East. But it's not based on the Middle East at all. It's literally just kind of... Yeah, the Badlands are just kind of a big wasteland where a lot of really cool things are. Like there's like a really famous swampland, which are the marshes of madness. Uh, there's also a lot of a lot of mountains, and it is a place that is very heavily uh, focused by greenskins. But a lot of great civilizations used to live there. Uh, the Nehekarans, who are the Tomb Kings, used to have their empire all through there. 
And then after they fell, we got the rise of Morcane, which was another big empire that lived there. Then they fell. Uh, the dwarves were there. They fell. Uh, so it's a place where empires go to die. <laughs> so it does. It, that is kind of a famous, I guess, title uh, that the Middle East has had in a lot of human history. So I guess it does have that in common. Um, but it's a mess of a place. A lot of really cool treasures. Perfect place for adventurers or explorers. There were some cool supplements in the roleplay game about it. Uh, from there, we head north into what is more commonly known as the old world even though the old world kind of refers to what exactly is the old world is sometimes a little changed yeah. author to author uh, the old world um depending upon the author can be anything from norska all the way down to araby and the lands of the dead um sometimes it's just the little bit that's sandwiched in between the uh the spur if you will of the uh various realms that are about to be discussed by the lore master Sotek, but it really does include Norska, Albion, the equivalent of the United Kingdom, all of Europe, and all of the north of the continent of Africa as well, in terms of the fancy equivalent of it. Yeah, and just as Andy said, uh, that thing kind of we know is the old world, it's literally just fantasy Europe, and it kind of almost translates one for one, um, where you have, you have Warhammer Italy, uh, which is Talea, you have Warhammer Spain, which is Astalia, Portugal, you guys got left out, sorry. Uh, you have uh, Warhammer Germany, which is the Empire, Warhammer France, which is Bretonia, uh, Warhammer, which though hilariously, despite the fact the Empire is very heavily inspired by Germany or the Holy Roman Empire, they are British. Uh, <laughs> they're very British, but they use very. German names. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens. They got decided to be the main faction, so they stopped being German and became British. Uh, but uh, <laughs> then you have the Isle of Albion, just off the coast, which is a big, mysterious island covered in mist, which is kind of your uh, uh, England's... Celtic. Celtic realm. Yeah, very, yeah, Celtic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And then you got Norska, yeah. which is your Norwegian peninsula. A lot of Vikings and that kind of stuff. Heavy metal Vikings. Um, and then you have Kislev, which is kind of based on Eastern Europe and Russia themes. And then from there, you're back into the chaos waste. Um, then you have your mountains of Morn, which or, or sorry, uh, World's Edge Mountains. And the World's Edge Mountains are just a giant mountain range that go from the very tippy top of the world all the way down to the bottom of the Southlands. And they basically divide that part of the world in half. Mm -hmm. You are either on the west side of the mountains or you're on the east side of the mountains. And if you're mm -hmm. in the mountains, you're dwarfs. Uh, <laughs> so that's where the dwarf empire is primarily located uh, they live in all those mountains throughout the old world and along the world's edge mountains and then to the east of that is the dark lands and the dark lands is a barren wasteland that is very rich in resources a lot of oil a lot of uh, coal a lot of gold gems if you're willing to go there and you're willing to risk it for the biscuit, you will find some nice stuff. But the things that live there are awful. There are volcanoes yep. everywhere. It is a mess. That's also where the chaos dwarfs live, which are the hardcore uber capitalist uh, uh, industry race who have bizarrely advanced weaponry for a fantasy race. Like we're mm -hmm. talking about weaponry that in our real world, we go, oh, wow, that's really scary looking. <laughs> uh, quite strongly influenced by Middle Eastern um, uh, like Assyrian uh, looks as well. Yes, yeah, and a lot of things taken from like Mesopotamia as far as like yeah. their construction and all that stuff. So like ancient, really, really ancient history. Mm -hmm. uh, once you get past the Darklands, uh, you arrive in the Mountains of Morn, which are another giant set of mountains that tie into the ancient giant lands, which are even bigger mountains, and the Mountains of Heaven, which are even bigger mountains, which is kind of like the Himalayas and all the biggest mountain ranges you could possibly think of. All Plus 10. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, like so They're much really bigger than anything big. we have. 
But, yeah, um, and, and, and as a single example on that, the heights of the Himalayas um, are over in the equivalent of Warhammer's Europe in the old world. When you move over to the equivalent of Warhammer's Himalayas, it just soars above anything that Everest could ever come close to. Yep, and there is where you'll find the Ogre Kingdoms, which the Ogre Kingdoms are a super hilarious race of uh, a lot of really, really big guys. Uh, they have some extremely light themings uh, pulled from uh, certain cultures, uh, such as like uh, mostly like the the Mongolian horse that came over with like Attila the Hun and stuff like that. But those a lot of those kind of got erased away and they kind of just became fantasy ogres and left a lot of their human inspiration behind, um, which is probably a good thing. But um, they are a very, very popular race. They have a lot of really fun, like ancient primordial monsters, but we'll talk more about them later. Once you get past all the mountains, you arrive in Grand Cathay, uh, which Grand Cathay is warm and fancy China. Uh, and it's got a lot of really strong Chinese themes. They even have a great wall, except for theirs is called the Great Bastion and is much more successful at actually keeping people out. Um, <laughs> granted, it's a lot bigger. Uh, it is ludicrously big, actually. Um, and it is a giant nation that has all sorts of crazy things going on. It's ruled over by uh, a group of uh, dragons that are extremely powerful. If you go south of Grand Cathay and you cross the mountains of heaven, which are kind of like the Himalayas, you end up in End, the kingdoms of End, the land of a thousand gods, which is Warhammer Fantasy India, is one of the places uh, we're still waiting to see it fully explored. It's a very, very mysterious land. We know very little about it. Grand Cathay, thanks to, as Andy talked about, Total Warhammer, we actually know a lot about now. It used mm -hmm. to be incredibly mysterious, just as mysterious as End, but now we know a ton about it because the games went there, and we hope that we'll get that treatment with end as well. And then kind of the last major place to talk about really is if you go south, south into what we kind of think of as like Southeast Asia. So kind of like Vietnam, Cambodia, all that, those types of areas, you have the jungles of Koresh or the hinterlands of Koresh, hinterlands of um, Koresh. which are very mysterious. We know literally almost nothing about it. Like I could probably write it all up in about three paragraphs, um, a lot of jungles. We know there are some lost lizardmen cities there, but there are no lizardmen. Key, mm -hmm. uh, but there is a race there known as the Naga of Koresh, which are a super spooky race of serpent people. Um, but there are a lot of humans that live there. We do have mentions of humans, um, and everything else is so, kind of a <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a loose picture of the world now. Obviously, there's lots of other smaller groupings within this. There's wood elves hiding in various forests. There's lots of other realms that Games Workshop have done very little to detail over the course of time. Or when they detailed it, it may have been back all the way in time at their, say, third edition of the game. And at that point in the mid-80s, they were not necessarily culturally sensitive when they were creating their fantasy versions of these other places so you'll find that often <laughs> games workshop have never returned to it and gone we didn't do that so well last time let's wait until we can do it properly later a good example for that is nippon which i actually probably should talk about very briefly uh, uh, there, there is a warhammer japan it's called mm -hmm. nippon which is literally just what japan calls itself uh and uh, or japan and japanese and uh it's there it's it the old lore was not great uh it was very lazy uh, so it's one of the places that we'd like to see revisited so they could do a better job because old old games workshop a lot of the times they just kind of like slap something together and it usually was like filled to the brim with puns mm -hmm. and it was a very british in the 80s understanding with like like nope you know there was no internet there was no easy way to do research unless you wanted to like go get an encyclopedia and even that could probably be pretty eh, back in those days 
Um, there's also a Warhammer equivalent of Korea, but it doesn't have a name, and we know literally nothing about it. We know nothing. Um, so, before yeah. we move on to discussing each one of the primary factions, realms, species that you find out there, there's something that is definitely worth stating nice and clearly. You may note, as we've made our way across the world, that the world is actually, in terms of the number of different factions available, tiny. If we mm. go to real-world Europe and take a look at what it was like, say, during the Renaissance or during medieval times, there wasn't just five, six, or seven different groupings of people there. There were often hundreds, loads of different cultures, loads of different kingdoms, loads of different duchies, loads of different everything. The Warhammer world simplifies this down significantly, largely because it was created to fulfill the needs of the miniature base that was out there. And there wasn't armies for all of these lesser known countries, so they didn't bother creating a fantasy version of them because they weren't needed. However, for some of them, they just wrapped them all together. A fine example of that, as we mentioned already, was Kislev, which was just a, com a combination of most of Eastern Europe plus Russia, all bundled together into one fantasy version where they could express all of those ideas in one place. And when they then later came back again to rewrite those areas and turn them into something new and interesting that was far beyond its somewhat simplistic foundation, they created often some of the most exciting and fascinating realms from these lovely mixtures that they originally had. Those melting pots eventually created something really good because one of the great, great draws of Warhammer is not only is it super easy to get into because everything's approachable. If you've read any fantasy books, if you've read any history, you can immediately have touchstones into the Warhammer world and understand what it's offering. It's not just that. It's, it takes all of those things and it creates new, fascinating, deep stories with them that when you go along with them, you suddenly realize are significantly more than what they started off with. Now, this is a development. This has taken place over the course of decades, not just a few years. And it's this extra depth through its hundreds of books that really do bring people back to Warhammer again and again and again. And mm. one of the reasons for that is the nice varied mixture of factions that it offers. And the first one we're going to drop down on is one of good old Lord Master of Sotek's favourites. We shall start off with the good old Lizardmen, the poor old Lizardmen, you could argue, who were left shouldering the responsibility of the world when the old ones left and the coming of chaos had begun. And it's fair to say that they didn't handle it frightfully well. They uh, live down in the steaming jungles and they are a fine peoples. Yeah, so we've already talked a little bit about them. Uh, I talked about their kind of sub-races and stuff. Uh, the Lizardmen, I love them to death. They, the best way I can describe them is they are the abandoned guardians of a broken world. Uh, they were basically in charge. You kind of think of it, if you were a custodian or a janitor, at a at a building and you did a very good job according to your you really liked your boss they took great care of you you loved your boss they're actually your parents they're awesome you did your job great the whole building's clean and awesome and then a bomb goes off and the building is in shambles your boss is gone you have no idea what's going on the only thing you know how to do is your job so you just go all right i guess i'll just get back to mopping the floor even though like all the windows are blown out and half the building is ash and you just do your best that's the lizardman um, they have an impossible job, but they do it anyway because it's what they know. And there's a lot of there's a lot of a 
in my opinion, very beautiful story that's heartbreaking, but also really inspiring in that they are genuinely trying to put a broken world back together, even though nobody but them remembers. And even they honestly don't remember what it was. So it's what they're doing is frankly an impossible task, but I think there's a lot of fun in exploring what it is they're trying to do. And they're also, don't get me wrong. There is, from their perspective, you could think of it as a noble goal. Um, but the means to which they are willing to restore the world to what it used to be can get kind of genocidal at times. Um, like, you know, it, it, to go back to my analogy, you know, if they find like a group of children has moved into the building that weren't there when they were cleaning the building, they will kill those children. <laughs> so they are, they're not good. Uh, they're very order. Um, order. Absolutely. Pure order. Um, and so God help you if you get in the way. So loosely, um, we've got ourselves a host of amphibian and lizard-based species that are a large mixture of walking lizardmen and dinosaurs et al. that were originally put in place by the old ones to look after the world and conquer the world on their behalf. The great catastrophe occurs and it leaves this species in a position where it's no longer sure what to do next. It only has the remaining plaques that show the original great plans of the old ones that they are attempting to see through but there's hardly any of them left in comparison to what there once first originally there was loads of great cities across the world of the lizardmen now there's just a handful of them left great pyramids just five just five. Uh, great pyramids atop with mighty temples to not just the old ones devices of the old ones themselves still up there as we said right at almost the beginning this is a world that is not simply fantasy there are some pure high fan high science fiction nonsense going up there and they're super awesome yeah they shoot they have like dinosaurs that have war machines that shoot laser beams or mm. pulses of energy that reduce their foes to ash uh like absolutely crazy race a lot of fun magic uh they're very heavily inspired from like mayan aztec nahuatl cultures uh, very heavily inspired. Uh, if you know anything about those cultures and you read Lizardman, you'll be like, oh, I know all these things. Um, but now yeah. you could argue that the Lizardmen are the true good guys of the Warhammer world because they're attempting to see through the old ones' plans, but they're doing it blindly. They don't really understand what they're doing. Their leaders, the Slan Mage Priests, which look like enormous, massive, fat frogs, they barely ever speak ever, and whenever they speak, it's in such weird, deeply metaphorical ways that the various other Lizardmen who are attempting to interpret their wise <laughs> words are completely confused. They speak with each other from the tops of their temples telepathically across the world, much like the old ones themselves did before because they were broadly probably an entirely telepathic race so the slan is attempting to orchestrate the great plan from their temples but there's hardly any left they don't truly understand what's going on but that doesn't mean they don't give it a damn good try and uh yeah, they're a fascinating species in general, um, with the lizardmen controlled by the slan at the top, right down to the skinks and the various saurus. That's their warriors down at the bottom. Go check out our Lorebeards episode on Tenuin if you would like to know more. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you'd like to say in the lizardmen before we move no, on? I think we don't I think have we, a lot of time for each. We can kick along. We can tick along. All right, so let's go over to the great enemy. Since we started off with the arguable good guys, let's move on to the definite bad guys. <laughs> um, this is chaos. 
Now, chaos comes in multiple forms. We'll start off with primarily focusing on what is often referred to as the warriors of chaos or the demons of chaos, the true chaos faction. Now, this is a group that is looking to wipe out the world. But to do that requires a whole host of things that your average Chaos chap literally has no idea about. The vast majority of the Chaos Warriors are found at the northern pole of the world. The Chaos Warriors, as they're often referred to, are just tribesmen that make their way around the top of the world where the realm of Chaos seeps into the Chaos Wastes and constantly changes it. Magic is everywhere. The only way to be safe up there is to worship the chaos powers themselves that are so close to touching the world at the very top. You think it would be a great polar mess? It is not. It is everything and nothing. It is a horrendous place where you say nothing can be fixed until you find the eternal city, which is fixed. It's a complete place of contradictions and it is up there that there is constant battle. It is almost the epitome of Warhammer. A number of short stories with the battles at the top of the world that take place here as the only way to truly show yourself as better than another is to defeat them. But of course, it's a place of inconsistency. So just as much as that may be the case on one part of the chaos wastes is different elsewhere. These great tribes wander, gather, and eventually fall behind a great war leader. And this great war leader will then charge south somewhere. He may move down into Nagaroth, that's the equivalent of Canada. They may move down into the old world, that's the equivalent of Europe. He may move down towards the great bastion towards Grand Cathay, the equivalent of China and similar. And it's these great charges down great incursions um, that potentially spell the end of the world. And they're always timed, or alternatively, they're always accompanied by a great swelling of magic that comes from both gates in the south and the north. The great things to note about the Warriors of Chaos is that because they are so infused with magic, mutation, as in extra arms, eyes, gribbly bits all over them, are mm. super common. They also have a variety of enormous monsters that they have got on site. Lastly, in terms of the chaos parts, you've got the demons. Now, each one of the four great chaos powers that we discussed earlier have got their own mixture of different types of demons. Now, you might immediately think the word chaos would mean that they would all be very, very different. But that's not the case for the way Warhammer expresses its chaos. It's moved quite beyond the chaos gods as expressed, for example, by Michael Moorcock and taken them in a very different direction. The symbol of chaos may be the same as Michael Moorcock used, and the general overall tone may feel like it's the same, but when you look at these gods, they have far more character in terms of who they are, and they're far more consistent. Even the most inconsistent of them, Zinch, is consistent in his inconsistency. Um, and all of their demons tend to take a particular form, from the greater demons, which all have their own form, down to their steeds and their lesser demons, and the least demons that are kicking around doing their smallest little things in their behalf. And these demons all represent core mm, facets of what it is to be a, a servant of that god. If, for example, you look at just, say, the blood god, Corn, He's got lesser demons called bloodletters, and their job is with their massive huge swords and their iron skin to just, well, strangely enough, 
let blood. They just carve into everything. They look like almost typical demons with big chins and huge long horns and red flesh as they burn across battlefields and carve everything up before them. They are horrific. They exist for only one reason, that is to wage eternal war, because they are the servants of the blood god, the god of ferocious war and almost mindless destruction. And Korn, arguably, is also one of the, the most powerful chaos of the chaos gods. Um, but that's just one example. There's lots of demons for each of them. It's worth going and have a look at them yourself if you want to go through them all, because they're each fascinating in their own way, and they each represent an aspect of the god that they are pretty much a servant to. Ooh. Anything you'd like to add for warriors? There's yes, a bit, a couple of little things I'd like to add. Uh, yeah. Warriors of Chaos, you've probably seen art of them, even though you probably may not realize it. They are the heavy metal Vikings. They wear, they like to have big horns. They're always covered in black plate armor, unless you're dealing with like the lesser tribes that make up uh, their thing. There's a lot of sub-factions that kind of go into what the Warriors of Chaos are. It's a very broad, Warriors of Chaos functionally just means more human mortals of chaos and they're friendly monsters. Uh, yeah. Where you've got like Norska, which are from that Norwegian peninsula we talked about. So they live in like a really frosty hellscape, a lot of ice and horrible monsters and stuff, but they tend not to wear as much armor because the armor is earned. So like your big bads, like your more accomplished older warriors will have the crazy black armor, which is either a gift from the gods or they trade for it. Uh, and the rest are kind of like almost naked dudes running around with like crazy tattoos and leather armor or pelts and all this other stuff. So you have kind of some interesting juxtaposition of themes where you have like the guys in hardcore crazy heavy armor and then you have the hardcore guy uh, like the super crazy berserkers that wear very very little armor uh in comparison uh the only other thing i would add there are three major big yes. major tribes yes sorry scandinavian yes um uh words but uh <laughs> the other major thing is there are three big tribes you'll hear a lot about. There are the Norskins, which thanks to Total War Warhammer especially have kind of blossomed into almost being their own faction. They've been getting As a lot of very, be. yeah, they've been getting a lot of very particular focus. Uh, the other two great tribes are the Hung, which are very heavily inspired by the Hun. Uh, they tried very hard on that one. Um, they ride steep, like, you know, they're like born in the saddle and they're roving nomads and they ride more like ponies as very scary ponies but they tend to like ride very um uh tough stubborn ponies as opposed to like the big scary war horses of the cool and the cool are kind of cool. the ultimate big bads cool of the bad. chaos tribes well <laughs> while the hung and the norskins hang out a little closer to like the the southern areas and like the civilized world and raid those people the cool are up in it like they're almost more in the realm of chaos as opposed to anywhere else and a lot of your biggest, scariest bad guys will come from the cool. Yeah, so basically what we have is Chaos Marauders. That's um, a classic Games Workshop term. Indeed, there's even a game called Chaos Marauders, although it wasn't really about chaos. It was about orcs and goblins, but let's just not even talk about that. <laughs> and our Chaos Marauders um, come down from the north constantly raiding. If you happen to be one of the poor, unfortunate realms that are close to the northern gate up there and all of the raiders that are around there, you are going to have perpetual war every single year. Indeed, in Kislev, it's called the Spring Driving, where they just drive down from the north and they're pushed back another year. It's not, however, until the, all the Chaos Hordes are bound underneath one leader, someone called the Ever Chosen, that 
truly the world is in danger. It's not just a matter of raiding and those northern realms being in trouble. This is a point where the entire world is potentially in trouble as the Everchosen is effectively given a purpose by all four of the Chaos Powers who effectively possess that individual. And that individual then comes down into the Warhammer world generally to do something, much as will be the case when the final Ever Chosen, that's Archeon, will come in, take his purpose, I won't go into all the details of what he did in the end times, and then destroy the world. So that is, loosely speaking, the Chaos warrior stroke the demons that support them or indeed are supporting the gods um faction and their job is to destroy the world they come from the north and they're constantly raiding their lives are horrific it's a constant cycle of one-upmanship and attempting to prove yourselves to uncaring chaos deities who literally have not a jot of interest or sympathy in mortal concerns but occasionally a mortal rises to such a point that they are chosen and those chosen mortals are the ones that take on the best gifts. They might become sorcerers. They might become mutants. They might become something more important than they once were. But some of them get so many gifts, they just turn to chaos spawn, which means that they become big, <laughs> gribbly beasties, completely mindless, just tumbling across battlefields, squashing everything in their path. Such is the nature of chaos. You might one day be the special chosen one, and the next day, gone. Yeah, you might just turn into the thing from the thing uh yeah <laughs> uh but uh yes and uh, uh when i was talking about the big tribes i meant to say kurgan i said cool cool are a sub-tribe within the kurgan but the kurgan are like the bigger tribe anyway cool okay. cool are the worst yeah cool um, all righty um we're gonna move on to one of my favorites now um because i fear if we're going to be discussing chaos and we're going to be discussing from before that the lizard men who are the force of order you really need to be discussing the people who brought the first war against chaos to a shuddering end and all species of the warhammer world brought the first war against chaos this is the one when the old ones themselves vanished the great catastrophe happened a great war began across the world and they were held back all species all realms were responsible for holding them off but one particular species did something that pretty much ended chaos's attempt to wipe out the world that time round, and that was the elves now the elves are often called the chosen of the gods because they have a variety of gods who have very real impact upon the warhammer world in a variety of different ways they lived in the magical island of ulthuin where they lived in an idyllic paradise with their gods now if you believe some of the stories it's very possible that included the chaos gods way 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 back in time no one can be quite certain what happened with the chaos gods we just know they tried to destroy the world we do know that the elves lived with their gods hand in hand and then the great war occurred their gods fled and it left the elves in a position where they had to try and fight off against chaos much like everybody else around the world or face utter annihilation the elves came up with an eventual plan and that was appeal to their gods because they were fucked um <laughs> and i apologize for being so blunt but that's what they did um azurian um who was the divine emperor of heaven he is the great creator god of the elves had effectively told all the gods they weren't allowed to touch the warhammer world at all under any circumstance um and chaos was winning 
No other way of putting it. They were. The dwarves, as we'll discuss, had come up with various plans to try and stop them. The lizard men had done all manner of things to try and keep the gate shut. They were, they were doing their best. <laughs> they were doing their best, um, but it was all going wrong. So a single elf, an elven prince by the name of Inarian, decided that he was going to appeal to Azurin, the great divine emperor, and say, please, please intervene. So he goes to the shrine, the shrine of Azurian in Althuin, and he pops up the great pyramid of Azurian and where the big flame of Azurian is and pleads. All around, chaos forces are gathering and pleads. Those chaos forces are marching in and pleads. His forces are now being destroyed and pleads. He offers sacrifices. He cries, he wails, he bemoans. He's an elf. Warhammer elves are quite unlike elves you'll find in other fantasy games. They're exceedingly tall. They're willowy. They're strong. They're exceedingly magical. But they're also exceedingly emotional. And I do mean intensely so. Far more so than any other species. Far more so than humanity. Think of them all as overwrought teenagers at their worst. Constantly trying to control their exceedingly high-pitched emotions. Imagine this king seeing his people being annihilated. He is desperate. So he finally sacrifices the only thing that he's got left. And that is himself. And he throws himself into the flame of Azurian. Now, Azurian is not only the divine emperor of the gods, he is also known for being the phoenix. And Azurian looks down at what occurs and for whatever reason, eventually sees this sacrifice as being worthy. Now, there are many different tales as to what happens in here. We won't discuss them. What we will say is that Inarian came out of that flame having already died. He was reborn like a phoenix himself, and he became what the elves would later call their first phoenix king. As he then stepped down the pyramid of Azurian and massacred everyone because he was carrying the power of the god within him. And this is uh, the first step to the Warhammer world beginning to change. Well, the gods may have gone and the old ones may have gone, but with the elves, the gods can manifest directly on the world through one of their many servants. And in this case, Azurian changed the rules and he allowed the gods to walk because he did it. And he walked in Inarian's flesh and Inarian stroke Azurian wiped out that chaos army that was besieging that uh, shrine and then proceeded to chew gum and kick ass around Althuin. Now, that would have been great, except the forces of chaos were just too much because in the material realm, you follow rules. But immaterial magic was everywhere. And every time you killed a demon, a new one would pop up because of all the magic that saturated everywhere. Effectively, it was a war. Even if you had divine influence, you could not win. Which means that we need to move to one of the most significant and important events that happens in the Warhammer world. And it is discussed in different ways. Some novels take one angle. Some uh, of the army lists take a slightly different angle. But loosely speaking, there is a great spell cast by a chap called Kalidor, um, an elf. And it's fair to say that Narian doesn't agree with this particular spell being cast. <laughs> he <but> it. <laughs> his, yeah, because it will drain all magic from the Warhammer world. And there's a reason he doesn't necessarily agree with it. Because it also drains magic from his people. It's not just weakening the demons. It's weakening 
everyone that uses magic. And elves are highly magical uh, creatures. So he comes up with this plan to drain magic completely from the Warhammer world so that no longer will it be saturated with the influence from the Great Gates from the North and South Poles that are flooding the world with magic and demons. This plan, to cut a long story short, is enacted, succeeds, and a massive vortex of magic is created, a mixture of science and technology using parts of Old One technology mixed with a great spell that Kalidor and a host of other elven mages chant. And such is the nature of this spell that reality itself breaks at its core, and that spell never stops. The wizards who cast that spell cast that spell until the end of the world and keep chanting until eventually the vortex will one day collapse. And as I'm sure you can imagine, when that vortex goes, it's not necessarily good for the world. So magic suddenly is wiped free from the world. The elves, with their phoenix king, are suddenly completely divested of much of their power. But the chaos hordes that are across the world lose all their demons and they're now a finite resource. And mm. they, they have the equivalent of a god at their helm, who by this point is also carrying a magical weapon of such puissance that he can literally kill everything. It's a cursed one, and all sorts of bad things happen to the elves. But we will discuss that when we head over towards the Dark Elves. Long story short, mm. huge event occurs. The Great Vortex is created. Magic is sucked from the world. So now we have a world where magic comes out from the gates and given the elves when they then pursue around the world the support of their vortex they create stone circles around the world that channels the magic in their direction it sucks out goes around the world goes over to the vortex above althuin and gets sucked right back out of the world into the aether meaning that the world no longer is open to demons but it is still saturated with a certain amount of magic not as much as it was before but certainly there and from that we have the High Elf culture that's about to begin. But I will say, at this point, it's not the High Elf culture. It's the Ulthuan culture. The children of Azurin, the great emperor god. Because at this point, there's no difference between High Elves and Dark Elves and Wood yeah, Elves. just Elves. This is about to occur. Yes, and the one thing I do want to add is that there's a lot there. Uh, you can check out our Malakit stream if you want more information. Holy shit, is there a uh, lot? I would also recommend touching on like the Dragon Ogre episode. Uh, can be good for like Warriors of Chaos and also some other features there. Uh, the Vortex, you will hear a lot about that in Warhammer Fantasy lore and just talking stuff. The Vortex is it is the linchpin on which the entire world relies. Uh, most factions are often either trying to support the vortex or trying to destroy the vortex depending on if they are you know a order faction or a destruction faction and what their aims or goals may be and uh, even when you're like not dealing with Ulthuan, a lot of times you're dealing with like minhir stones or way stones yep. or things that funnel that magic to the vortex which will feature very heavily in stories across the world because if the flow of magic is disrupted magic will start to kind of like coalesce and uh stagnate and it that now is an area with a lot of magic which means demons can show up and spells get more powerful and other all sorts of shenanigans happen it is magic is a resource but it also allows things like demons to take form and break into it allows the fabric of reality to get not as tight as you would like it to be yeah magic comes from chaos yeah and thus 
And those who use magic are using the weapon of the enemy against the enemy, so to speak. And the more magic there is, the more dangerous it is for those who are fighting chaos, but the more power they might have to fight chaos. It's a bit of a problem. It's a great conundrum. Yeah, so getting into uh, the elves and actually splitting them into the three sub-factions that you've likely heard about, the, the high elves are kind of the simplest from this part of the story. The high elves are the elves who, after everything that I'm about to talk about, are the ones that managed to maintain control of Ulthuan and have held on to their island, although they are much reduced in power, they're much reduced in population, but they are your Warhammer Fantasy Atlantis. They have a lot of very strong kind of like greek themes to them as far as like their kingdoms and the relationship with their gods and what a lot of their gods are like um their gods are kind of much more of a reflection of themselves um their gods are very elven kind of like how the greek gods were very human uh they have a lot mm -hmm. of flaws and really dramatic stories and they're kind of ridiculous in a lot of ways but they're extremely powerful uh, the High Elves are also probably the greatest of the seafaring races. They have a lot of awesome navies and giant ships. They have dragons out the wazoo, though most of the dragons, because there's less magic in the world and the world is also the climate changed so much because of the interference of the old ones, most of the dragons are asleep and they won't wake up anymore. Um, mm. And it would take some kind of horrible cataclysm to wake up a lot of the dragons for one big final battle. <laughs> but uh, the High Elves, uh, have a, they're a very, very political race. Uh, they have a lot of, they have a very intricate series of politics in their Phoenix court. You have the kingdoms are always arguing with each other. They have a lot of really fun political schemes. They've gotten a lot of really fun stories about they're invaded constantly. They're very rarely on the offense, but they're often on the defense because of the vortex. Um, a lot of people are drawn to it, whether they realize it or not, whether it's the forces of chaos, just destructive forces like the Greenskins, uh, who we'll talk about more later, or some of their greatest foes like the Dark Elves. So I'm going to say something that many people might not recognize as particularly High Elven, but is often discussed at least behind the scenes, and that the High Elves are the ultimate colonizers of the Warhammer world. In many respects, the High Elves are often equated with the British Empire in a variety of ways that most people who only dabble in Warhammer might be surprised to hear. And that's because they, right after the first fall of chaos, the first war against chaos, um, once they consolidate their power, the Elves then spread across the world and they colonize it they go everywhere Everything. and they and they spread their version of what they think civilization is again we're talking about this theme of civilization and order against disorder and destruction um and that pretty much lies at the heart of what the elves are and they spread across the world from end to end they have the first truly world-spanning empire and that empire like all empires as we know is doomed it is about to fall it lasts for a couple of well about a thousand years before it really falls I'm trying to remember my dates off the top of my head I'll go uh, get after. So from it lasts 50, for a good while anyway yeah, like 50, um five thousand before their imperial calendar to like yeah Eh, probably like a good one or two thousand years. Yeah, somewhere around that before the War of the Beard properly hits and the War of Vengeance. Um, so we've got ourselves um, a world-spanning civilization. It colonizes all of the old world. It colonizes the Southlands. It colonizes parts of Lustria. It colonizes right round the world into places that Games Workshop never really touch in any of the other books, but they're quite happy to say, oh, there's still a few High Elf colonies over there without <laughs> yeah, detailing what else is over there. 
Yeah, totally. like Indonesia, literally the only thing we know about them, High Elves Colony. That's it. That's Indeed. So the elves are out there and uh, their hubris um, is about to, well, take, give them a swift kick up the bum, largely because of the nature of how the Phoenix King gets resolved. Yes. So the to, to really save on time, once again, go watch the Malekith episode for a lot yeah. of the breakdown on this. Yeah. There is a schism within Ulthuan, which is that a lot of the High Elves, uh, now there's a lot of really cool theories about what exactly led to this, whether it was the interference of Chaos changing the Elves in some subtle ways, or just a nat or the the curse of Anarian, which is, uh, as he talked about earlier, Anarian kind of drew a really fancy, awesome, kick-ass god blade, but supposedly it doomed his entire race. Uh, or whether it was just due to High Elves just being, or Elves just being arrogant assholes that do what arrogant assholes do. Civil War breaks out. A really ugly, ugly civil war. We're talking mothers versus daughters, sons versus fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. Everybody's killing each other. It's a horrible mess. And the fighting gets to that level of bitterness where it stops being about who's going to like have control and it's more about destroying the other guy, regardless of the cost. And this leads to Malekith, who is the kind of the ultimate big bad. Uh, he is uh, known as the Witch King because he's so big and scary and evil. He tries to do what his dad did and go through the fire. Doesn't his go dad well. is Anarian. Yes, yes, Anarian. Yeah, who you know became a god going through the fire, or demigod at least going mm. through the fire. Malekith tried to repeat it, didn't go as well. <laughs> he didn't make it through the fire. And threw himself out. Once again, it's a whole thing. You can go check out the Malekith thing. And he gets burnt to a crisp. But luckily, he lives in the Warhammer Fantasy world. So instead of just being just dying from being horribly burned, he gets put in this super badass-looking suit of crazy armor that allows him to still be in eternal pain, but at least he can move around and throw spells and stuff. So yeah, there's a couple of things that we need to note. First, we've got an event called the Sundering, which yep. is effectively the breaking apart of Ulthuin. Um, where you have one group of elves that stay in Ulthuin and become the High Elves, the Azure, the children of Azurin. And we have a second group of High Elves um, that become, later on, the Dark Elves, who follow after the Witch King and make their way over to Nagaroth, that's Canada, effectively, and the Land of Chill. And they settle over there, and they have a very different view as to what elves are meant to represent and what they're meant to do. Now, it's really easy to think of the Dark Elves as bad guys um but they are also warring against chaos to the north because chaos is an existential threat to them so they've got a string of fortresses which protects against chaos to the north they're constantly peering off into the north and watching what's going on there so it's not as simple as again as we mentioned earlier saying bad guys and good guys it's much more about order and civilization and chaos and destruction and the dark elves sit in this interesting a half-baked place where they have a very different culture. They believe in the supremacy of elves. They've got slaves, more slaves than you can possibly imagine, and their culture is... It's dark. It's, it's and bloody and cutthroat and bitter. Compared to the high elves who become, if anything, indolent by comparison, particularly the inner kingdoms, where life is almost perfect. Now, the... Uh, Ulthuin Island is basically a giant donut because after the sundering, large chunks of their island pull off because they literally sunder it apart. Huge ships get created out of chunks of this island called Black Arcs that the Dark Elves use to raid across the world. 
And uh, this big donut of a land has gone inside of the donut, the inner kingdoms, a big mountain range that goes throughout the whole circle, and the outside of the donut, the outer kingdoms. Now, the outer kingdoms are outward-looking, seafaring in general, um, and much more used to war. The inside ones are beyond indolent, often taking drugs, lost in ecstasy, prone to pleasure cults of slanesh, generally not necessarily aware of the outer world at all, and deeply isolationist in comparison to the outer elves. The outer the elves from the outer kingdoms are often called sea elves by those that don't know them, because they're often the ones that take to the seas and dominate the seas, because even when the after the sundering and the elven culture massively declines. Um, the empire withdraws. The Phoenix King, as it was at the time, says, all elves return for the war! And they all come back, except for some. And that's where we get our third faction, Wood Elves. Some elves decided that they were going to stay in their homes, particularly one group called the Azrai. They were a group of elves that were so tied to the forest that they were in, this magical, mystical forest, which borders onto Britonia, which we mentioned earlier, right in the heart of fantasy Europe in the old world. It's right in the middle. Um, they were so tied to this forest, so keenly attached to it, they refused to leave. Plus, it's fair to say, they were also led directly by their gods, because not only had Inarion been possessed by a god, their leaders, Orion and Ariel, were also possessed by gods. And it's not easy to tell a god what to do. So they basically went, yeah, nah. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating mess of a story, in like a good way. Um, yeah. There's a lot, of, like the forest is alive. Athel Lauren is a very spiritual place, but the forest itself is alive. A lot of its spirits possess trees or can take the form of what look like trees. So that's where you get your dryads, your tree men uh, stomping around. And you're talking about incredibly ancient spirits that understand magic. They're kind of in a very, very basic sense. You can almost think of them as like nature's version of demons. Um I wouldn't call them yeah, good they're demons spirits. because they're, they're scary. But yeah, they, they quite literally are. They're, they're, they're spirits. They're the same etheric base as a demon, except in this case, they are possessing trees and similar. Yeah, but they're a very fun faction. Of, if you're aware of a lot of fantasy tropes involving elves, like very generic elves, wood elves tend to lean very heavily into that. Um, as far as uh, some other key notes, there was like a really big war between the elves and the dwarfs. They were really good friends for a while, but due to various shenanigans and both of them being too prideful mm -hmm. to like, you know, not brutally murder each other. Uh, they had a really, really big, ugly war that got just like it did with the high elf civil war got very bitter. And this led to the dwarfs effectively pushing the high elves out of the old world though it was helped that the dark elves invaded Ulthuan, which happens a lot i think there's been like six or seven invasions of Ulthuan by the dark elves mm -hmm. um and the dwarfs are like yeah we're awesome uh and think they're great which we'll talk about more than in a second but the wood elves are kind of a an a consequence of that where you have this group of elves that are entirely located within the old world and hiding within the forest um they're extremely isolationist and their forest is a very magical realm that is very difficult to navigate. Uh, most people who go there don't come back. Um, and it's a place where like time and space don't work the same way because it's so magical. You could spend a thousand years in there and have only actually ventured like a couple of football fields. Or you could spend a day there and you've gone hundreds of miles. 
or you could walk in and come out and it's been 300 years or you're now 500 years in the past. Who knows? Um, shenanigans. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. So we've got ourselves three groups of elves, three separate factions. We have the High Elves of Althuin. They're tall, proud, arrogant. Shining people. silver armor. They, super fancy looking, clean. They they rule the seas, although not entirely, but they generally rule the seas. Um, and they are often, particularly the ones from the inner kingdoms, indolent, political, backstabby, and remember, extremely emotional. We've got ourselves the dark elves over in the land of the chill, bitter, dark, twisted elves who believe in the absolute supremacy of the elves over everything. They think that the chaos hordes in general are nothing more than tools to be used not necessarily feared they believe that althuin is theirs they believe that their king should be the phoenix king that's the witch king then you've got the wood elves they are those who refuse the call of the phoenix king and decided to stay in their magical mystical realm these are your classic elves of the wood wearing greens and half-faced masks they're using their bows and arrows to fend off against any would-be infiltrators into their woods and it's fair to say that their wood is not just magical it's a little bit not just beyond sentient crazy it has roots that spread out across the world and even allow the elves to travel to almost any part of the world through the world routes towards forests that might be located elsewhere the elves are all to a individual deeply magical deeply emotional and in most cases deeply xenophobic and proud they are a species that do not get on with others particularly well. And as has been noted, there was for a long period before the elves split up into their three different groups, there was a long period of allegiance with the elves and the dwarves, but they fell massively apart during the War of the Beard, which was also kind of initiated by the Witch King. Um, so we have ourselves all manner of interesting things for our elves. I think we should go to the last species, which was definitely strongly influenced by the old ones in terms of I, I its arrival. Want, uh, oh, you want to say something else? Yeah, for, for people that are kind of new to the setting about the Wood Elves, they are, if you're like kind of looking at factions and wanting to investigate, they are very much your nature first above mm -hmm. all other things. They don't give a damn about anybody as long as balance in nature is maintained so you know we kind of talked about the lizardmen are all about trying to restore the great plan and we'll do anything to achieve that uh you know humanity's just a lot of times trying to survive uh or being greedy little shits but uh for the wood elves it's all about nature if you're doing anything to disrupt nature or cause a problem throw the world out of balance they will end you it does not matter how noble your intent is uh, or how, like, oh, I just need a little bit of firewood for me and my family. Oh, you cut down a tree that was still growing? You're dead. <laughs> it's oh. it's, it's going to be bad. Yeah, the, the, the elves aren't good guys. And again, that's why I say using the words like good and evil really do not apply to these. The high elves, the high elves have got slaves of their own in their own way um, over in Lathurn. Um, It's nothing like what the dark elves do, which is a slave, effectively, economy that they're working on. It's part of their civilization nevertheless let's move on to our next species because we've got a lot Ryan to cover yet Dolly. okay so um our next one is going to be in silver ships they came but nobody really expected this one to come oh with them. we're gonna do them first okay yeah let's get them out first because in silver ships they came the old ones but they brought something with them and they didn't mean to yeah, now, so you remember how we said this is a sci-fi setting sometimes? Did you know there's a race of aliens? It's true. 
<laughs> it is absolutely true. And they're green aliens as well. Um, so let's get on to them. If you happen to be in the 80s, um, deep into your, I don't know, Tolkien and clutching yourself off like a bunch of uruk or orcs or some goblins or something like that, and you wanted to play Warhammer, of course there was an orc and goblin War uh, Warhammer army. Very quickly, Warhammer orcs and goblins got very much their own flavor. The first thing that they got that was not standard was they were painted green. Now, I remember, to this day, many people who were angry at that because they wanted to paint their orcs and goblins yellow or they wanted to paint them brown. But no, Warhammer orcs and goblins were green. The origin and then, of the green orc. Yep. Quite. Um, and then uh, war green orcs and goblins um, started gaining their own character in Warhammer literature. Whenever they brought brought up, they were very much equated with one of the big pressing issues in Great Britain at the time, and that was hooliganism at football. Now, that may sound a little bit odd, um, but they very much, to their core, are football hooligans from the 80s. That is the Orc and Goblin society as it started so they were very much at here we go where we go as they're chanting away going oh my god often giving cockney accents to give you an idea of a cockney quite terrible um accents cockney accents in general so <laughs> this is how they are started off however over the course of time the or the green skins and the orcs and goblins go through various versions. Sometimes they're made quite cartoonish, and then they become much more monstrous until we eventually arrive at the orc and goblins that we have by the eighth edition of Warhammer, which are like a green tide of horrific energy. They have an ability to ignore the winds of magic by creating their own magic simply by chanting and fighting and getting in. The more they fight, the bigger they get. A little bit like the Incredible Hulk. They didn't arrive in the Warhammer world by normal means because orcs in the Warhammer world don't procreate in the same way that all other species generally procreate. Orcs procreate through spores and mushrooms. Now, that might sound a bit odd, but that has been a thing in the Warhammer world for far longer than most people realize, although originally that concept came from 40k. And uh, there was even doubt right up to the seventh edition of the game whether that was the case for Warhammer Orcs and Goblins, because some people dissed it and said, that's a 40k thing, isn't it? Until it was written very clearly in eight. In silver spaceships, they came and the spores of the orcs and goblins were seeded across not just the old world where they're most famous for inhabiting, but the world in general. And in all the dark places, those spores turned into fungus and eventually coming out of the earth came the first greenskins. And these greenskins are... Wow. Let's yeah. say a force of nature. So a couple of quick things about Warhammer Fantasy Greenskins, because you, you are probably, dear listener, familiar with 40K Greenskins. First of mm. all, we spell orcs the normal way, with a C. Yeah, with a C, goddammit. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is that our orcs, to be frank, are a lot more interesting than 40K orcs, or Greenskins, I should say, because we have a lot more subspecies. Uh, mm. 40K Greenskins are just orcs. Um, they have Gretchens, but nobody really cares about the Gretchens. It's just orcs. Uh, mm. In fantasy, we have many different subspecies where we have different kinds of orcs. We have yeah. our regular orcs. We have the genetically modified black orcs. More on those uh, later because they're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we have the 
hilariously refusing to use technology because the old ways are best savage orcs uh, who are all about tattoo paint and not using anything made of metal which is hilarious um then we have your goblins which goblins are much more prominent in warhammer fantasy than anything equivalent in 40k where goblins yep. have other their own subspecies where we have forest goblins that live in the forest and hang out with giant spiders and use a lot of like crazy uh, hallucinogens by getting the spiders to bite them and they ride spiders out of the size of entire castles which are terrifying and not fun to think about then you have and they're very like uh, they have like a lot of feathers and a lot of poison and stuff like that then you have your night goblins who live down mm -hmm. in the depths of the mountains and the deep dark places who are scared of light they don't even like the moon because that's too much light um and they are all about they wear like big black hoods so that they can cover their eyes when they go out on raids and they have a lot of they're kind of the more swarmy of the uh, various goblin factions they have these things called squigs which you're probably familiar with in 40k but we have a lot of different kinds of squigs used in battle uh which we big have cave squigs yeah you uh -huh. have your giant cave squigs you have your mangler squigs you have your regular cave squigs you have your squig hoppers which are goblins riding on squigs that bounce around we have colossal squigs which are the size of dragons we've got we got all sorts of squigs uh but 40k has a lot of squigs too uh and then uh we also have like kind of your more traditional goblins which i tend to call plains goblins uh which are goblins that ride on giant wolves uh into battle and are roving the plains as big nomadic bands. And some of them even have kind of like mobile cities, according to some legends, where they have like tents on big wooden platforms and their cities are always on the move, pulled by just tons and tons and tons of wolves. Uh, but so there's all these different subcultures and different groups. And the Greenskins are honestly uh, the perfect, well, there's one other race that might compete with them for it, but they're kind of that perfect junction between horrific monstrosity that is so violent and awful that they're just pure horror and being absolutely hysterical hysterical and stupid <laughs> because they're so over the top and they're so dumb that like it can be hard to think of them as a threat sometimes often because you're looking at from their perspective where they have these goofy coffee accents they're constantly killing one another in the silliest ways where they have weapons that are literally they put a goblin in a catapult and they shoot the goblin and the goblin has little wings and a spiky hat and he tries to land on people to impale them it's hilarious it's called a doom diver catapult we love it yeah i love um, the doom diver so loosely um our green skins and i think it is worth um i'm, I'm going to go further and say that it is worth making it clear that uh for those of you who know your 40k you might get an idea oh it's just like those they're not the goblins do not create orcs so goblin spores don't then move on to orc spores and create orcs from the same area goblins spores make goblins Orc spores make orcs, and there's different types of spores that create different types of orc and goblin and other subspecies. As we'll discuss as we move on to some of the other factions, we've got things like hobgoblins, we've got noblars, we've got other types of greenskins all over the place. Greenskins are a deep, fascinating, and interesting part of the Warhammer world that are both horrific, monstrous, and gather in great numbers every once in a while as we hit towards a wah. Yes, which a wah, which you have to yell to make it proper, um, is they are, it is more, is more like the land coming alive and turning green against <laughs> you 
than anything else. Like we're talking impossible numbers, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of green skins flooding across coming at you with all sorts of bizarre weapons and bizarre powers that really smack in the face of the understanding of the world because greenskins are the only faction that can get so hyped uh off violence they're so ready to go and up that they can literally like cause explosions and other really bizarre shit just because they're that excited which is a very very imagine if you had a group of toddlers and whenever the toddlers got really excited, one of them could shoot you with a gun that wasn't there. There is no gun, but he shoots you in the knee anyway because they're just that giddy and excited. That's what dealing with greenskins is. Yeah, so the greenskin tribes uh, generally war with whatever's close, war amongst themselves. But every once in a while, one of those warlords will rise to be dominant. And when that happens, the proto-beginnings of a war begin. Because orcs and greenskins in general very much, it's not so much respect, but certainly fall behind dominance. And they will, upon the arrival of a very successful warlord, come in and fall in behind them and join their war effort. And those war efforts tend to be much like a forest fire, this encroaching tide that just carries on and just doesn't stop until either you put the fire out or it's burnt everything. And what tends to happen is most Waz keep going until the person, the individual orc responsible at the top gets killed. And then all the tribes that fell in behind it fragment off into different directions and just attack whatever is close to them. And if you're really unlucky, a new warlord will rise up very quickly after that and another war will begin. But normally they all fragment and disappear. And then a few years later, another warlord might arise. Now, obviously, if you happen to be one of the realms that are being plagued by greenskin attacks or anything similar, being aware that one of those warlords might suddenly swell out is something that you've got to not just know you've got to be ready for prepared for and ready to stop but it's again a little bit like trying to stop the tide yeah the waters are rising you also notice if you're ever reading greenskin lore there's a lot about people trying to funnel greenskins into narrow passes or valleys or things that make their numbers not count as much because if you don't you're gonna lose period yeah and um, because uh just because we who might be playing a war game or who might be reading a book can immediately identify which greenskin is the leader <laughs> Because we're like, well, there's the big war boss over there. In reality, imagine yourself as a scout looking down into this great valley of four or five thousand greenskins, or worse, if it's a big one, 20 to 100,000 greenskins. Some of them on great wyverns, massive trolls moving along, some ogre mercenaries at the side uh, coming along for the fun. They're all sitting down there, and you're looking in going, where is he? Which one no. do I have to kill? You have no idea. So it's not about simply trying to kill the war boss. It's about trying to hold them off and ultimately kill that war boss and hopefully fragment the green horde before you. Yeah, and hilariously, that's actually a better case scenario because if it's there's hundreds of thousands of them, but you can easily identify the war boss, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem because that generally means he's big because orcs don't necessarily have a top. Uh, yeah. an end point in terms of their size some orcs are almost as big as ogres truly enormous monsters and these orcs are nigh on unkillable because an orc if he has his arm cut off can put that arm back in its socket stitch it with a bit of rope and the arm is likely to keep on working orcs are not human indeed all of the species in the warhammer world aren't 
the same as each other. And I think that that is something that is worth drilling down on relatively hard as we do another one of the non-human species before we start moving on to dwarves and humans in various types. All of the species in Warhammer are unique, discrete, and not races of each other. That means, for example, if you get an elf and a human and they decide to get do a horizontal shuffle, they are not going to be having half-elf children. They are going to have nothing because they are completely different species. If an elf and a dwarf, for whatever reasons, decided to take <laughs> it on, at least once. <laughs> that's, that's going to uh, arrive with no particular children. If a halfling and a human, a halfling and an elf, a halfling and a dwarf, a green skin is made of spores, so that ain't ever happening. So you don't, strictly speaking, under normal circumstances, ever get half species. Yeah. But, I will add one extra caveat to that, and that's that this is a world that is saturated by magic, that is being channeled often badly, because over the course of time, the great network of stones that channels magic to the vortex has been broken. Magic coursing through the world, sometimes weird things happen. And sometimes something like a half-elf can occur. Something like a half-halfling can occur. These things are possible because mutation is possible. Mutation is constantly in the world because magic is constantly seeping through the world. That being the case, where every time you hear someone say that's impossible, there's almost always somewhere an example of where it happens in the Warhammer world. Yeah. Also, uh, it's like a 40 plus year old setting that's been worked on by dozens and dozens of people who just kind of did their own thing a lot of the time and didn't check each other's work because it's a pain in the ass. Um, and unfortunately, Games Workshop doesn't hire someone who does that, like curates their work and make sure everyone's on the same page. We're not like Lord of the Rings, where it had a singular author, so everything was kind of very nice and neat. It's a mess, which is a strength and a weakness because it means pretty much anything can happen just depending on the situation. Um, so yeah, states statements like always or never are really not good to use in <laughs> Warhammer. They're um, not. But um, and indeed, the orcs and goblins epitomize that because the orcs and goblins to begin with weren't green, and then they were. The orcs and goblins to begin with were pure comedy, and then they weren't. The orcs and goblins uh, to begin they with green, then they bleed uh, red, then they exactly. <laughs> the orcs and goblins to begin with weren't spores, and there was half orcs, and there was a variety, and then that wasn't the case anymore. So every time you expect that something will be firm in the warmer world, a new version of the game comes out and it will create its own multiverse angle, so to speak, on how that world works. Now, is it fair to say that there is, and I think this is something that I think we should conclude this, but on but a canon of uh, Games Workshop books, and by that I mean books that are accepted as 100% factual. Yes, there is. And it's whatever the most recent releases are from Games Workshop Studio. That's what? it. Yeah. The yeah. studio, not anywhere else, only the studio. Anywhere else might be drawn upon by official Games Workshop works, but it might not. Some of the novels might be considered to be useful, but might not. So you'll find that some of the roleplay books or some of the computer games might have aspects of what they presented drawn into anything the studio produces, but they might not. So if you want to get a single canonical piece of work, you go to Warhammer eighth edition now that might not suit you because you might be out there going well i play warmer fantasy roleplay third edition and that's the only one that matters to me that's fine there's nothing wrong with you playing whatever version you want at home when the old world comes out it's going to offer a completely different version 
of Warhammer. Hey, this is not going to be canon in about five days. <laughs> exactly. Everything that we di discussed here, the old world have taken its own way, but the old world has got its own design goals, has got its own needs, and it's got its own orders from the studio as well as to what it can and can't use and what it can and can't do, because ultimately the studio is the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong with these things. Yeah, but we're going to keep moving. Uh, if you want to know yeah. more, check out the Grom the Paunch uh, Lorebeards video uh, we did. Uh, we both have a playlist on our channels that have all the episodes. I finally fixed mine, so it has all the episodes now. Uh, I haven't fixed my shoes. Oh, I fixed mine, and they're in order, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go fix mine right after. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can check out those playlists if you want to check out any of the episodes we did last year, because I think we did like 16 or 18 episodes last year. Yeah, we did pretty uh, well. So uh, moving on. Um, so uh, who do we have next? Dwarfs? I think so. Yeah. So Brave Dawi, everyone's absolutely favorite traditionalist conservative little jerks. Uh, the dwarfs of Warhammer Fantasy are they're quite literally the dwarfs from Tolkien, but dialed up to 11 in all the best ways. If you've seen like if you read The Hobbit or you've seen The Hobbit films, <laughs> you know how uh, by the end, Thorin Oakenshield gets the gold, the dragon sickness, and he kind of goes, he kind of turns into an asshole. Imagine that's just how dwarfs are. <laughs> that's that's Warhammer Fantasy dwarfs. They're jerks. They are very greedy. Um, they are incredibly stubborn to the point of literal suicide. Uh, and they will hold grudges forever. They have entire books where if you do something to offend them, whether it's minor or major, they will. the king will cut himself open put his blood into a little vial and use royal blood to write down in a big old book of grudges what you did wrong and what they expect in a, a recompense, whether that's money or whether that's killing a certain amount of people or taking something that was stolen or what have you. And they will hold on to that forever until it is dealt with. There is no word for forgiveness in the dwarven tongue. That is, that is like a very common thing that's brought up. And they, hey, you're a human. You only live for maybe, what, 80 years if you're lucky. You know, the dwarfs, they don't get you. They don't get your kid or your grandkid or your great-grandkid. But your great-great-grandkid, they finally got around to dealing with him. And they come after him because you spit on one of them in an argument. And they've come to collect. <laughs> and your great-great-grandson goes, I don't know this guy. I don't know what happened. They don't care. They're here to collect. So the dwarves, in terms of their character, um, are exactly as described. But there is many reasons for that within the Warhammer world version of what the dwarves represent. Um, at the beginning of time, when the old ones were still around, the dwarves were given some great responsibilities. And their ancestor gods, as they're called, so the very first and most important dwarves, the ancestors of all the dwarves of the world, um, they gave their lives to hold chaos back from the world. The dwarves still to this day feel that their gods were responsible for holding off the great war against chaos the first time around. Yeah, the elves might have done some magical bullshit, but the dwarves don't even really perceive magic. Magic to them is quite beyond them. You don't get dwarf wizards inside the Warhammer world. What you get instead is runesmiths. These are individuals who can craft and shape magic into a physical form and create runes that empower magical artifacts to do certain things. But the dwarves themselves utterly incapable of magic. So the vortex and all that nonsense means literally nothing to them. What their ancestors God did is they marched forward towards the chaos gates and similar, far more important. 
You've also got to remember that the dwarves very much believe that the past, that tradition and the past is not just important, it was better. Because at the beginning of time, when the old ones were still around, they lived in a high technology society. That was what the dwarves had, and they've lost it. They have been doing nothing more than trying to find the perfection of their ancestor gods ever since. And the old ways are better. And people coming up with new ideas are to be deeply frowned upon. Because, hmm, no. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's deeply suspicious. <laughs> deeply, deeply suspicious. Um, they depending upon which version of the Warhammer world you look at, originally the dwarven holds, which are the great cities of the dwarves that lie within the mountain chains of not just the old world, but possibly beyond as well. It's very possible we'll move over to a different part of the world and find other types of dwarves over there as Games Workshop expand elsewhere. But for the moment, it's primarily the old world down into the Southlands that possibly at the very beginning, they were all connected with trains, proper trains, but possibly gates where they could teleport from one place to another. The mm. first initial parts of their great runic works, the dwarves were used by the old ones for a purpose. And that purpose, much like most things the old ones put into place, has been lost. They themselves, when the old ones left, fought a bitter war to close the gates. A gate they never really truly closed, but their gods are arguably still out there trying to do that, possibly giving their lives so that all other dwarves can continue. And all other dwarves are always thankful for what their ancestors did for them so that they can come around. There's another couple of things we should say about dwarves as well, because they are not like humans. And that manifests in multiple ways. Number one, they, uh, they, they, well, they're obviously very short, wide. They've got hands as large as my bloody head. Yeah, they're with, a lot wider than you. Yeah. Like if you're listening, Ooh, they're, huge. They're, they're not like the movies where they're just short humans. They are no broad. Warhammer dwarves would probably weigh about seven or eight times me easily. Uh, your average Warhammer dwarf is actually about five foot high, not three and a half foot or four foot. They're they're proper tall. I'm six foot and a little bit, and they come up to my shoulder. Their little heads there, really broad bodies, huge hands and huge feet, large bellies filled with muscle. An interesting point to note, though, is when uh, dwarves have a far lower sex drive, and dwarves breed very differently in terms of their numbers of children um most of dwarf children are male and this is something that is not generally spoken about but significantly impacts their society it impacts the importance that women have within their society dwarven queens and the impacts that they have and how important they are the only place that everyone can be certain they can draw their lineage through is the women that again the female dwarves hold a significant portion of what dwarfishness is um one of their most important um, ancestor gods is equally um Valea, uh who is all about building the clans and the hearths together there is a whole ton of cool stuff about dwarves that we don't need to go into that can basically be summed up as they're not human they're exceedingly stubborn they do ancestor worship they have absolutely no magic they live in mountains and as a species are pretty much fucked in that the vast majority of their holds have fallen to either the Greenskins or, as we'll discuss, Skaven, or even to Chaos, because there's also another faction of dwarves called the Chaos Dwarves. Yes, I do want to say before we do that, there are two last things I want to say. A, I opened the segment by making kind of fun of them, but the dwarves are a really awesome race. They're mm. incredibly honorable. They are the most 
loyal allies that exist in Warhammer Fantasy to the point where the founder of the Empire, who we'll talk about a little later, Sigmar Heldenhammer, like formed a friendship with them and the dwarves have held on to that friendship for 2500 years even yep. when the you know humans being humans the empire has done some kind of shitty things the dwarves have always said you know what no like they were founded by a man we deeply respect and even though like if y'all screw up like we're gonna we're gonna hold you accountable for it but we will always have your back like up until the world explodes the dwarves do everything in their power to help humanity and stand Indeed. by humanity because they are that dedicated to loyalty which is one of their best features like you know they're very traditional and conservative uh which definitely has different connotations nowadays uh in a lot of ways but there are a lot of very noble aspects about them massively um, yeah. and also we don't spell dwarves like tolkien does it's we keep the f in warhammer fantasy it's not dwarfs. it's not dwarves it's dwarfs uh you keep the f no v's no v's you do dwarf dwarfs dwarfin you keep the f um so chaos dwarfs yes like andy said so this one uh we're gonna touch lightly on um uh, though also if you want to learn more about dwarfs go check out our slayer episode on lore beards uh, oh there's a really good episode about slayers slayers are dwarves who swear an oath because of a great shame that they have had to uh, deal with and they're so honorable they can't live with that shame and slayers are oh, punk dwarf friends they are the best go check that episode yep uh another episode that you can check out to talk about the thing we're about to talk about is the czar nagrand episode which is the capital of the chaos dwarf empire and mm -hmm. chaos dwarfs are a spectacular race that they are the small one of if not the absolute smallest population race in warhammer fantasy uh there's not a lot of them they have one big city and then they have like a couple of important towers and little enclaves immediately around them but it's a teeny tiny empire but it is powerful despite that they are a they are a build tall not wide civilization uh mm -hmm. quite literally but they are dwarfs with all of the morals and all of the traditionalism removed. So what happens when you take a race that are ultimate craftsmen who are capable of creating horrible weapons of destruction, but they are innovative to the point that they don't care how dangerous the weapon is. Um, and they are also willing to use slave labor and they view everything that is not them as literally just fuel like other yeah. life forms are fuel for the fire so there's a couple of extra things to say about chaos dwarves number one um unlike dwarves they're ever so slightly mutated um they have a slightly different look they tend to have tusks um they tend to be almost universally dark haired um it's also worth noting that the chaos dwarves have a variety of magical capabilities as well unlike standard dwarves although the it does not get on well with them their god <laughs> a shot is he's genuinely evil like the chaos yeah. gods you can kind of argue that like they're awful because of the way chaos works but like there are elements of them that could be seen as good hashit has no redeeming qualities he's uh, the god of tyranny greed and like tyranny. fire awful yeah awful god yeah they, they, so the Chaos Dwarves are at the very heart of industry. Consider them all industrialists that are enslaving greenskins all around them to better end up with their enormous weapons that they construct. They're also responsible for constructing a significant amount of the Chaos Armor that is used by the Chaos Tribes to the north 
over at the Northern Pole. So there's a great deal of trade between the Chaos Tribes and the Chaos Dwarves. The great story as to how the Chaos Dwarves came about is certainly worth looking at, but I, rather than us go into depth here, if you're interested in it, I suggest checking out our Zarnagaran stream because we go into it in some depth there. And we also discuss some of the other aspects of Chaos Dwarf society in there as well. It is a fascinating society and one of the more fun ones because it is dark. It's really dark in the same way the Dark Elves are pretty dark, um, but nevertheless a well-considered um, society as a whole. Yeah, I do like the Chaos Dwarves. Yep. Uh, another chaos faction that I think uh, I want to take a quick pivot to uh, before we move on to another one is we do want to I do want to touch on the Beastmen for just a minute. Oh, um, I, I, we've got Beastmen coming after the Empire. Oh, we do. Never mind. You tell yeah, yep. where we're going to go then. Yeah. Yeah. So um, our, our next one, <laughs> we have a list. Our next one is the realms of the old world. Um, we're taking these broadly as one great group. Um, because the realms of the old world are lots of different human realms that have risen up over the course of often the last 1,000 to 2,500 years and come to dominate in an area that was once ruled by the High Elves and had a host of older human tribes in that area that have been often displaced by incoming tribes at a later date. Now, there's a host of realms here that we're going to be discussing. We will be focusing on two of them in particular because they are the larger factions in the area that are often used either in more games or in more of the, well, in more of the Warhammer army list, to tell the truth. Um, but we will talk about all of them at least a little bit. So we'll go through them all first and discuss each of their fantasy equivalents. So we start off with the Empire, arguably the most important faction in Warhammer, largely because it's had the most written about it. Almost every novel started in the Empire. And it's crazy to think the proportion of novels that are in the Empire to those that are out. Most of them center in the Empire. The Empire was the core setting for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, first edition, second edition, third edition, and fourth edition. It's the core setting for multiple computer games. It's the core setting for More Time, one of the battle games. It's the core setting for so much that it has become for many and a ubiquitously attached to Warhammer. So much so that when Warhammer was blown up, they took the god of the Empire and made it the whole bloody game, Age of Sigmar. Um, that's how influential the Empire is. The next area is the Wasteland. The Wasteland is somewhat equivalent to Fantasy Holland, and it is an ex-part of the Empire. It used to be a part of the Empire, and it succeeded approximately 100 or so years ago. Next, we have Britonia, which is equivalent of Fantasy France, but in truth, it's Fantasy Knights of the Round Table. We'll get onto that in a moment. Mm. Next, we have Fantasy Kislev. Um, Fantasy Kislev. We have Kislev, which is Fantasy <laughs> Eastern Europe, or Fantasy Russia, and it's covered in snow. Next, we have Norska, which is even covered in even more so. Fantasy Scandinavia, crazy heavy metal Vikings. Then we have Tilia, Fantasy Italy, a host of trading Tilian city-states. We then move over to Estalia, Fantasy Spain, a host of kingdoms. We then go to the Border Princes, which is Fantasy the Balkans, I suppose. A whole host of smaller princedoms, kingdoms et al, which are rising and falling over time. And finally, we arrive at Araby, which we've discussed already, which is fantasy Arabia. 
So the most important ones are the Empire and Bretonia, but I think it's also worth spending a certain amount of time on Kislev because that's going to be a pretty core um, setting over the course of the old world as we move on. So where would you like to start? Uh, I, let's get the let's let's take that Empire big boy down. That is a okay. Big... Yeah, this one's easy. Two thousand five hundred years ago, Sigmar was the son of the tribal chief of the Umberigans. The Umberigans were one of the tribes of humans that had invaded into the land that is now the Empire. And his birth was heralded by a twin-tail comet that flew through the sky. We're not going to go into the details of his life because we're almost certainly going to do a stream about this big bad guy at some point. But Sigmar, through the course of his life, does enormous heroic deeds. One of the most important was saving the life of the High King of the Dwarfs, an event that eventually got him called Davonger, which means Dwarf Friend. Now, that might sound like something relatively minor. It's a freaking oath that goes to the very heart of what they believe this person means. To call someone Davonger is to mean that that person is trustworthy and is a friend, and you will always answer to them. And as it turns out, Sigmar through the course of his life, binds together all of the tribes of humanity around him, some 12 tribes or more, depending on the story you read, and then heads on south towards Blackfire Pass where a great wah of greenskins has gathered. And it's an enormous one. Now, this wah is almost a walking representative representation pardon me, of what has been thousands of years of war that the dwarves have had with the greenskins. And it has this culminating war as Sigmar's troops come in, the dwarves come in to support them, and the greenskins are freaking annihilated, ending thousands of years of war that cement Sigmar's place as Devonger. He is pretty much the bestest man that ever existed as far as the dwarves are concerned. The Sigmar then looks at what the dwarves' model of high king over all the kings is and replicates it as him as emperor over all of the counts, the elector counts, of each one of the primary tribes that he led to Blackfire Pass. And that is the foundation point of the empire. This empire lasts for 2,500 years, but I am going to drop a couple of blips into that so you understand some of the timing, because this empire doesn't last well. Sigmar himself lasts for a full 50 years as emperor and then hikes out and disappears. Because, you know... We can't have our once and forever emperor not doing a runner, can we? A few years after that, a high priest by the name of Johann Hellstrom pops in and says, Hey, remember our emperor? He's Rock, a god! He? <laughs> he was the bestest ever. Well, Ulrich, the god of winter, wolves, and war, he put a crown on his head and said he's a god. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be his first high priest. And um, yeah, Sigmar, he's a god, ain't he? And Sigmar, from that point forwards, is not just deified, he ends up becoming the patron of the Empire as a whole. A god that 2,500 years later dominates the region. Sigmar is worshipped everywhere, even in areas where Sigmar worship for a long time was forbidden. So, a couple of important events. Number one, after about a thousand years of expansion and falling apart and expansion, uh, the Empire eventually takes in a group called the Halflings. They're basically hobbits. And they take up an area of land called the Really vulgar hobbits. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're, they're not the same as hobbits. Um, they're, fa they're far more 
Yeah, vulgar hobbits. We'll maybe get onto those because, yeah, <laughs> spot on. Um, they take in the halflings, and the halflings become a core component of the empire. Um, they take up one of the grand provinces. The empire split up into many grand provinces, all of which vote in the next emperor. Um, a few th hundred years after that, the place falls into complete civil war. At the time of two emperors comes, the time of three emperors comes, and then eventually the Dark Ages come, as everything's gone wrong. The Empire splits up into thousands and thousands of separate, disparate little kingdoms. Some of the Grand Provinces still claim to be Grand Provinces, but they're not really, as all their individual dukes do whatever the hell they want. This is the time that the Old World will be walking into, the tail end of that, before the Empire is bound together again in 2303, that's 2000s 300 oh, it's, it's 03 he's crowned 2303 2303 mm -hmm. years after sigmar was crowned that magnus the pious is crowned the first empire over the unified empire again consider it almost like the second coming of the empire um as magnus the pious binds an empire that has been broken for about a thousand years plus together again and that is the empire that we will lead through to eventually karl franz 200 years later and the destruction of the world Loosely speaking, that is the history of the Empire. It is currently, in its tail-end part, a bunch of grand provinces of, led by old hoary nobles who are representatives often of very old tribes that ruled the area 2,500 years later, earlier. Um, anything you fancy adding to all that? Uh, yeah, just a, a lot of Renaissance tech. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they have a couple of mm -hmm. weird little things you'll find in there, like steam tanks which are like literal tanks that run off steam, uh, which are just as stupidly dangerous as you could possibly imagine they would be. Uh, they also have like a lot of really fun black powder weapons, a lot of bizarre creations. They have an established colleges of magic within Altdorf, which is our version of Hogwarts. And it's a lot funner <laughs> uh, and also kind of insane. Uh, but uh, those are all in the capital and the empire is, it's so deep. Like, if, if we did like an empire stream it would last for days and we still would not get through everything yeah. um so there is an almost infinite amount of stuff to talk about but the empire is a lot of fun and they are the main characters of the setting though not if you're from 40k not nearly to the extent that like the imperium is oh yeah where, like, the empire they are kind of the main characters but there's a lot that happens that just has nothing to do with them mm -hmm. absolutely um the uh empire is for all, it's the one of the core settings, was never one of the best-selling armies, though, which is fascinating when you actually consider how much focus was given to the Empire by the Games Workshop as a whole. The mm. most best-selling armies were often completely different to that. So that's just a small aside to add to that one. Um, they Is there anything else worth saying on them? Uh, if you want Sigmar, to Sigmar, more, Sigmar, Sigmar. Uh, yes, there is one other thing. On, uh, Volkmar. Yeah, Volkmar's a good one. Um, it's very easy to get focused on the fact that Sigmar is the patron deity, but it is a polytheistic society, which means that they believe in multiple gods. And the vast majority of the populace is quite ignorant, tiny villages and towns that are completely separated from the main cities, who all have their own weird traditions. It is the core setting for the fantasy roleplay game if you happen to go out there and buy the fantasy roleplay game. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that despite being the main character with the old world returning, the Empire is not actually one of the starter factions it's yeah it's kings. <laughs> yeah absolutely um yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the empire because the empire has an awful lot of very established history for this era but i'm quite certain that the old world would just rewrite that as they require yep 
All right. Uh, who do you want to... Bretonia, I guess? Yeah, Bretonia. So, do I jump home, Bretonia? Yeah, Bretonia. Bretonia is pretty easy to summarize in that it is literally take the Knights of the Round Table, Arthurian Legend, make them French, put them in France, and also add in a lot of... Imagine if you took Monty Python, but you took it a little too <laughs> seriously. Like, if you actually pay attention to Monty Python, the Holy Grail, and go, wow, this place kind of sucks. Like, it would be kind of sucked to live here. That's the version of Bretonia we ended up with. Because what's very interesting about them is that Bretonia didn't get updated like all the other races did. Where yeah. every, like kind of Andy said, Warhammer Fantasy evolved over 40 years through the course of eight editions, which changed dramatically. Like, Warhammer Fantasy 3rd edition is almost nothing at all recognizable like 8th edition. Yep. Uh, Bretonia didn't make it to 8th edition. They stopped getting updated in 6th edition. Six. Which sixth edition to eighth edition was about ten years worth of stuff, and a lot happened to Warhammer Fantasy as far as like how serious the narrative was taken. Mm -hmm. um, sixth edition was very very dark. It was extremely dark, and it was it was almost to the dark dark to the point that it was funny, um, where mm -hmm. it was that depressing. So Bretonia kind of got left behind in an edition that was incredibly bleak, and so instead of there kind of being any light. It, it just kind of sucks. <laughs> it's a place where a lot of people make fun of because it has kind of like a two tier. Well, technically there's three tier political system where you have the nobles, which are all your knights, your noble blooded people. Um, and then uh, you have kind of a very teeny tiny merchant class that only exists I... in a couple of ports. And then everyone else is just peasants. And these are like inbred degenerate, poor peasants <laughs> that live in the mud. And it's just, they're, not educated at all and it's awful and it's it's one of those things that it was kind of so ridiculous how much bretoni was uh disparaged that they kind of just got made fun of and it's just because they never got their eighth seventh and eighth edition books which probably would have steered them to be more in line with the other races that kind of got they took it a little more seriously so to speak and tried to kind of balance it out instead of just making it so ridiculous so um, there's a few things to say about the Bretonians. Um, they're, as a nation, a realm would be better, it's not really a nation state, um, about a thousand years old. They were originally um, bound together by a chap called Gilles Le Breton. Um, he goes by some other names as well. Um, and Gilles Le Breton was supported in his reclaiming all the land that becomes Bretonia and the Breton tribes that he bound together um, by a goddess that goes by the name of the Lady of the Lake or just the Lady. Now that may obviously immediately ring Arthurian bells because yeah it's just been lifted and ported straight over but the actual story behind that is deep fascinating and interesting as it turns out we have an entire stream on that about the Lady of the Lake go check and it's only out. part one we are going to do a part two on that because we we're going to need a part two in that one um it's <laughs> it's a really good one though because there's a lot that's um to be said about them the Bretonians if we're just going to sum of them are Knights of the Round Table supported by a ton of peasants and nothing really in the way of real ranged fire beyond a few arrows and maybe a trebuchet at the side that no one really likes. Yeah, knights. Knights as far as the eye can see. If you like knights, knights they are the faction for you. 
And they are all deeply religious as well because of the Lady of the Lake worship that they have. Um, Britonia as a faction is also somewhat stymied in terms of its technological development in that it's held in a more medieval state. Now, we know the real world reason for this is a mixture of that's the sort of models that people had and people wanted to use. So thus they were going to make an army to support that. God damn it. Um, but the in-game justifications for that are more solidly based on the religion and and the lack of need for certain technological innovations because of the benefits they get from their very real goddess who does very real things on their behalf. Yeah, she breaks all the rules. She like, pretty much way. does. Yeah, yeah, she's fun. Lady Lake's a lot of fun and is worth looking into if you want to know more about Bretonians in general. Yeah, so also I think the, it's, genuinely oh. the biggest conspiracy mystery character of the entire setting, which makes it extra oh, yeah. fun. Yeah, it does make it extra fun. Kiss Lev next. Yeah, so Kislev, uh, very heavily inspired by a lot of like Slavic cultures, uh, Eastern European stuff. Very ice tundra, eternal winters. Not, it's not actually eternal winters, but like every time ever they're ever talked about, it's winter. Um, they have, uh, they're a very, very interesting faction. Very young nation. Um, they're kind of similar to Bretonia, where they're only mm, I want to say thousand years old. Um, uh, Shoika came across the. Um... Uh, world's edge mountains about a thousand years ago yeah. having heard mother kislev um an entity whispering to her tribe for some time and they had fought their way from the chaos waste because the original uh tribe that forms the gospodars that forms um current modern day kislev were effectively a chaos worshipping tribe um and they came from the north and they came all the way down to where kislev is they fought their way in and like a bloody tide they came down the world's edge mountains and massacred everyone before them which included much of the eastern borders of the empire a host of other local tribes that they washed over destroyed and then decided to rule Yes, uh, and Kislev is a very fun uh, faction a lot of people like to look at. A, they have a lot of really cool creatures and monsters because Kislev is a very magical Mishka. land. Mishka. Yeah, Mishka, Mishka was uh, the first czar queen. Yeah, mm. the first con queen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, they have a lot of really, really fun... Uh, it's a very magical land. There's a lot of spirits. Thank spirits you. are very, very active in Kislev. So there's a lot of... If you're familiar with a lot of like... Um, fairy tales uh, especially from like the brothers Grimm, and like a lot of those like really spooky uh eastern european tales you'll see a lot of those creatures and entities show up within kislev to the point that there's a literally a baba yaga character with this which is mother ostankia and she's just she's baba yaga uh with some slight differences but uh there's they, i mean they have ice witches from like the the tale of the snow queen and a lot of those like really old fairy tales it is a fairy tale heavy faction uh, but like the dark fucked up version. Um, but they have three primary tribes. Those are a lot of other tribes that are within it where you have the Gospodars who are kind of like the ruling elite. Uh, then you have the uh, the Ungols, which are the people who, for the most part, got their asses absolutely handed to them, the poor bastards. <laughs> and they are much more rural, generally speaking. Um, but they have a lot of interaction with like the hags, the hag mothers and like the old lore, the old, the old ways of doing things, dealing with the spirits where the gospodars tend to have much more of like, oh, we have gunpowder and we have ice witches and we, we know what's going on and we control the land with an iron fist. The ungles are much more like, no, we work with the land. We work with the spirits. We are guests and we do our best to keep them happy, which cause a lot of cultural clashing between the two. Because the Gospodars don't understand the Ungols and don't, 
there's a lot of clash between the uncles being like, no, we need to do what the spirits tell them to do. And the Gaspardars go, no, you do what I tell you to do. Uh, and then there's also the ropesmen who everybody likes to forget about. Uh, <laughs> you also have a couple of other tribes there, like the Fry Kings and such like. But loosely speaking, the important ones are the Gospodars and the Ungols. The Gospodars who are effectively civilization and the Ungols who are much more rural in terms of how they approach and are an oppressed people in comparison to the ruling Gospodars. The Ice Witches, as we discussed. Um, in fact, it's worth um, just dropping a little bit of lore here um, that in Kislev, the only magic users that they really allow are women. They view that men are incapable of controlling magic without falling to chaos, perhaps because they are much closer to the realms of chaos because they're much further north. There's lots of different reasons for why it may or may not be the case. What is certain is that all the hag witches of the Ungols, they are all women, and all of the ice witches of the Gospodars of the ice court, they are also all women. Men don't have a good time over there. Yeah. Uh, same thing in Bretonia. Uh, Empire is actually kind of unusual in that they have a lot of male wizards. Uh, but uh, in the interest of time, we're going to skip along. If you want to know about Kislev, go check out our Hag episode, uh, Hag Witches episode that we did. Uh, yeah. On Lord All Beard. the rest are going to be super easy because we're going to be relatively brief with them, mostly because they don't have much in the way of real armies. The first one is the Wasteland, which is pretty much dominated by one thing, and that's Marienburg, which is worth mentioning because it's the largest city in the old world. The second largest city, Altdorf, is the capital of the empire, but the wasteland is frankly enormous, and that's because of its exceedingly important position on the mouth of the River Reich, which is the most important trade river in the empire, and it flows out through the wasteland. There's a long story as to how the wasteland secured its independence from the empire. That doesn't really matter. Just simply imagine yourself a society where nobles have largely been pushed aside. We have ourselves a bunch of merchant princes which largely rule. Money here, is king. Yeah. And money is king. They have a very strong alliance with the high elves. And there's an entire quarter of the city dedicated to the high elves who support them militarily as well as fiscally with trade and allowing them to trade out into the sea, which the high elves often try to restrict other groups from doing, um, meaning that the empire has somewhat of a hard time should they ever decide that they wish to try and retake the wasteland. But retaking the wasteland is a constant political, let's say, point over in the empire particularly in nordland um where the wasteland runefang is we'll discuss runefangs in another stream and and altdorf the old capital where they want to retake the wasteland for historical reasons loosely speaking though it's a very rich very big city surrounded by a large amount of land called the wasteland and is somewhat equivalent to a fantasy holland yep uh then we got Estalia, who we know criminally little about like we know yeah. that it has kingdoms, it has kings and queens. We know yeah. that a lot of them tend to live up in the mountains because it's safer and it's easier to defend their lands. Uh, they've had a couple of problems with invasions in the past. They've had a lot of problems with like necromancy. And of course there were the invasions from Araby, uh, but very, they're Spain. That's really all we know. Um, it's worth um, tying them together with Tilia a little bit as well, because Tilia was largely in the same place until in 5th edition they released the Dogs of War army list. Um, and the Dogs of War army list, rather than provide a Tilian army list, instead what it did was it provided 
tons of different mercenary groups, all of which largely worked out of Tilia and also discussed the background from any of the Tilian city-states, which were very similar to the Italian city-states. And the reason why it's worth tying it through to Estalia to a degree is not just because we have Tilian city-states and Estalian kingdoms on the other side, but it's because the two sides both share um, an event in the past, which again may change at some point, but as it currently stands, um, approximately... Whoa, 2,000 years before the end of the world, 2,300, depending upon which date you prefer to go for, um, a goddess manifested inside either Estalia and Tilia and then conquered both realms. Her name's Myrmidia. We have an entire stream about her. Which Go watch is one it. Of the reasons why I bring her up. Go watch that. Um, and that will tell you a lot about Estalia and Tilia. But loosely speaking, they are fantasy Italy and fantasy Spain both of which Games Workshop have yet to properly detail in any realistic fashion, meaning that it's quite possible that if they decide to do so with the old world, for example, we might end up with a fantasy version of the Tilian city-states that is very different to what we had already been given before. Yeah, to be fair, it's already a clusterfuck as is, because yeah, like the cities, really is. They're, they're very funny and do different things, but we don't have time. Uh, so last thing, <laughs> last human Border princes. Border princes. It's a fucking mess. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's a collection of kingdoms where every single kingdom is completely different. It's ruled by random individuals. It's the wild, wild west of the Warhammer world. Wild, where wild west. If you have power, that if you have military strength, you have power. And if you have power, you can claim a kingdom. And your kingdom's probably going to get knocked over by greenskins or vampires or ogres or another kingdom. People are constantly dying and losing and popping up. Some of the kingdoms are ruled by people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. Some of them are not even human. Uh, so it's a mess of a place where every time they make a map, the all the people on it are totally different. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those ones that frustrated me massively because I've done many official maps for Warhammer um, because so many different maps have been made of the place and there's very little that's consistent. And every time that I attempted to add a bit of consistency, like, for example, Kipris. Kipris is mentioned in multiple sources. The Kiprian Road is mentioned in multiple sources. So I was very keen to ensure it was definitely there. So I dropped that in a couple of maps. Then, for example, the Old World came along, kept the Kiprian Road, but got rid of Kipris. <laughs> Why is it called that? So, no, nobody knows. So why is it called the Kiprian Road? And Kip, uh, Kipris was supposed to be one of the most ancient of the border princes. Um, one of the ones that had managed to survive from the beginning and was as old as Tilia. A properly ancient site of power inside <laughs> the border princes and has just vanished, which is uh, deeply amusing. But I, I think we'll have a note about it. That speaks to the border princes in general, what Games Workshop has always used it for. And it has always been the, uh, what we want to just make shit up. Drop it in the Border Princes. That'll be fine. That's pretty much what the Border Princes is. Yeah. And if you're ever running, like, if you've ever played, like, a CRPG or a video game where it's like, oh, you get to make your own kingdom, the Border Prince is what you would use for that. Where it's like, oh, every you, time you got a little title or you and your buddies are running away from crime and you're going to set up a new life, Border Prince is where you go. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, old world, we've gone through most of the primary uh, realms that you find there, but it is not simply a matter of these human realms that have risen over the course of the last 3,000, 2,000, 1,000 years. There is a host of indigenous peoples and a host of other invasive peoples as well. There's two in particular that is worth, in fact, there's three in particular that's worth us focusing on. The first of them, as we discussed just a little bit earlier and we decided to hop in a little bit later, is the Beastmen. Um, the Beastmen are the children of chaos. They are mutant 
beast men, often with faces of cows or goats. And they are, uh, as a faction, herd-based, wandering through forests, doing bad things. We'll get into this in a moment. Um, the reason that we bring them up um, in the Empire is because they're generally seen as being the indigenous peoples of many of the great forests that are there. But the beastmen are all over the world. They come from the southern gates and they have spread up from there. They have made their way up through Cathay. They have made their way over to Nippon, the kingdoms of Koresh, over into End. They are supposedly everywhere. But the beastmen, in terms of the army list and how they're often presented by Games Workshop in the stories, is almost always as the children of the forest, often just in the Empire. Or head or attempting to invade the Laurelorn forest where the Wood Elves are. Yeah, so no, the, Lauren, sorry, Lauren. So the 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 big thing about the Beastmen is that when when Chaos first came to the world and we talked about the gates exploding and like chaos went everywhere, a lot of the early races that were there, like early humans, heavily mutated. Either and the stories differ, like some say that oh, the chaos made it so that their outer form represented what they were on the inside, so they became monstrous. Or that humans and animals, early herd animals that humans had kind of started bonding with, like cows and stuff like that, fused together and became the beastmen. Or that animals just kind of stood upright and started walking like men, and those became beastmen. All of those are probably true and more beyond. Because mm. beastmen, beastmen is a very complex term that is simplified mm. for the sake of the battle games, where beastmen are have infinite varieties for the sake of the battle games they're often just represented with like the cow heads and the horns and they look kind of the same but when you delve like even slightly into the lore beastmen have so many different variants that it's stupid because yeah. they're they're basically just mutants is the easiest way to think about it where some of them will have uh dog heads or rep or like crocodile heads or bird heads or like they'll have tentacles and all this other crazy shit anything you can imagine they they're all over the place because they're chaos they are constantly changing in a mess uh, which is what makes them very fun um, and in beastman society um they refer to themselves as gores um presumably because they gore people with their uh long horns and beastman society you are generally judged by the length of your horn so the um the smallest horns indeed they're there's the what those with the smallest horns called the ungor um are generally depicted as um being slight small with small horns the best agora those with the biggest horns big huge massive ones and they often are the biggest as well it's an easy way to categorize them for the battle game or for things like total war but loosely speaking the hordes of uh the great I don't know, the great war herds that make their way across the empire or elsewhere. Um, they are just a huge bunch of individuals, some of which will be big with small horns or small with long horns. Um, and simply categorizing them like that in reality is not quite the same as how you would categorize them like that for example the battle game the battle game keeps it simple for miniature based reasons but the actual deep nature of their culture is significantly broader than that alone if you ever crack open a black library book the beastmen in that book are going to be crazy and you'll yeah. be like wow why aren't they like this and the reason is because they would be expensive uh, <laughs> um, totally. but yeah they've got a lot of like crazy fun monsters they've got your cockatrices mm -hmm. your minotaurs uh giant horrifying minotaurs that are called gorgons or cygors which are like your cyclops that throw boulders like kind of in the classic myths uh, they've got mm -hmm. all sorts of crazy stuff uh, they predominantly live in the forests. Um, their goal is basically to return civilization to kind of Stone Age, where it's all about hunter, uh, hunt or be hunted, prey and predator. 
a very primal primeval form of life is what they exult in and what they want to return things to because that's when they were dominant they hate civilization they hate technology despite the fact they use chariots which is kind of hilarious um though their chariots are very ramshackle but uh they have lots of really crazy creatures they have a lot of shamans um and they are actually kind of a bigger threat than a lot of people realize because a they isolate a lot of civilization because like the empire is predominantly forests um once you're like past the most southern parts so it's these isolated little bastions of towns and cities amongst seas of beastmen uh, but they are found anywhere in the world. You'll find forests. You'll find beastmen. Uh, pretty much, with the only exception being like Lustria, because the jungles are just super dangerous, um, and the Darklands, which don't have a lot of forests, so there's not a lot of beastmen there. Um, and it's it's also worth adding that the beastmen, as we understand them, just to reinforce this, are predominantly old world or empire beastmen. The type mm-hmm. of beastmen that you would get elsewhere in the world are not only not discussed, they are never really represented by Games Workshop, who very much focused on the old world variants. If we were to look at beastmen that came from, say, End, they almost certainly would be very different, and perhaps all the different places in society too. So you'll find that this is going to be something that is going to be expanded upon as they move around the world and realize that there are certain gaps and holes uh, in their lore but as it currently stands your beastmen are a faction of chaos worshipping creatures that are looking to bring down civilization again supporting that order of civilization being pitched against the disorder and destruction that they would prefer to bring it back to a different state of affairs Yep, but I think we can move on from that. Yeah. Beastmen are pretty easy. We now uh, move on to um, a faction that is relatively close to both the Empire and Britonia, but is a faction that actually has its roots all the way further south, down in what we discussed earlier with the Land of the Dead. And that's the Undead, and we'll take this as a whole, even though we are dealing with multiple factions here, in the fact that we have vampires, which form their own faction. We've got the Tomb Kings, which sort of form their own faction. And we even have entities like Nagash, which is, I think, the place to begin, and also the place to quickly move on from, because we got a whole scream on stream on him. Yes, uh, and uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to say for Nagash, he's he's the origin of the undead. He's the big bad necromancer. He invented what we understand now as necromancy. There's a little caveat there, but we don't have time for it. Um, go watch the stream on him. It was a lot of fun. He was. he was basically a god. Uh, he was a man who he becomes ended, that. Yeah, yeah. Who basically figured out how to take life and death and bend it to his will and make a monstrosity out of it. That was very effective. Uh, but eventually he gets killed, and when he dies, all of his work kind of collapses and scatters into its own stuff uh, without him being able to control it with an iron fist. And it breaks down into the stuff that he intentionally created kind of led into what we now know as the Vampire Counts, uh, who are kind of a deceptively named faction. Um, the, vamp- deceptively yeah, named. The, the Vampire <laughs> Counts, as you understand them, are just talking about the ones that live in the Empire. Uh, because mm-hmm. they were, they tried to be Elector Counts and take over the Empire with Vlad von Karstein, uh, who is basically Dracula. Um, and yeah. they are your very, they're your classic, if you think vampires, Bram Stoker's Dracula, <clears throat> that is the Vampire Counts of Sylvania, like Transylvania, Sylvania. 
Um, they've got your undead wolves, your little ghouls that are feasting on people's corpses in the graveyards, your big scary bats, your giant fucking scary bats, your zombie dragons, your zombies, your skeletons, your creepy carriages going through the night carrying around corpses, your haunting spirits. Everything classic um, uh, gothic horror is the vampire counts. I, I often call them your wet undead. You're kind of spongy undead. Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. Um, rather than the dry undead, I yeah. think it's also uh, it's also worth mentioning that there are multiple bloodlines of vampires, and each one of them have got different goals in different parts of the old world. None of that's really important beyond simply stating that there are vampires. They are part of um, the legacy of Nagash and what Nagash did as the great lord of undeath for creating necromancy, not just in the old world, but pretty much across the world as we understand it. Yeah, vampires are fucking everywhere. And when you yeah, go to are. different when you go to different lands, the vampires will change to be what you would probably expect more in those lands, which is great. And it's a lot of fun. Um, mm. there's also the tomb kings who we talked about a little bit earlier, are your Egyptians. Uh, they are super fun. They're the dry undead, so to speak. They work on different laws of necromancy. So instead of like killing mass hordes of people and then resurrecting those people as zombies, the tomb kings are more of an ancient kingdom that has come back to life. So they're not like creating more dead people because their lands are already dead. Everybody that is going to become a tomb king has already done so. It's more about they get angry and get pissed when people come into their lands and steal from them, steal their treasures or try to steal their knowledge or whatever, and they wake up and wreak havoc. Now, there are some among them, like Setra the Imperishable, who there's a lot of stuff going on right now because he's kind of the main focus of the old world coming back. Setra mm -hmm. used to rule a kingdom that stretched over continents Huge. and he wants his kingdom back uh yep. so he will often go out and lead invasions and kill tons of people because he's kind of a demigod um he is obscenely powerful and very egyptian themes they have very fun uh kind of desert gods they have a very different Indeed. understanding of magic and life and death than a lot of other factions and they have a very they're a very fun form of undead because it's not the zombie horror it is the perfectly measured the we have practiced these motions for thousands of years and have retained these skills in death legion that walks up from the sand with chariots and big constructs made of stone and marble and jade coming to life and attacking you and you know the mummy the movie the mummy just taken to yeah dreams I'll, I'll also add just to make sure it's clear they all exist because of Nagash. This was Nagash's original realm there back when they were still alive. Um, and Nagash intended to properly mince everything in the area and eventually created the lands of the dead through the nature of his spells, the great rituals he was casting. Yeah, so, the Tomb Kings are fun because yeah. they were the unintentional children. Um, they're the ones that came back into undeath and they're really upset about it. <laughs> Damn straight they are. Um, they don't so, look good and they know that. <laughs> so that gives us Nagash, the great creator of the undead, the vampires who are carrying on his legacy in a variety of different ways with different bloodlines, all of which have different powers, the most famous of which are arguably the Karstein lines that live in Sylvania in the Empire. And then you've got yourself the Tomb Kings, which are the very Egyptian-leaning uh, undead, the dry undead of the deserts, which were created by Nagash, arguably by mistake. Well, no, arguably about it, they were. So that's another one of the very larger factions of bad guys, you could argue, that are down there. But again, adding the word bad to um, some of these factions is not 
quite correct. Oh, yeah, it's still complicated at all. It's complicated. Um, but then we move to the third and uh, arguably most obviously bad guys of the three old world centralized factions, and that's the Skaven. I love the Skaven. Skaven aren't real, Skaven don't exist. Skaven don't exist. (laughs) So the Skaven are nothing more than beast men. That's one way of looking at it. They're nothing more than rat-faced beastmen, and they don't exist as their own individual society, and they definitely don't live underneath the vast majority of all the old world cities with massive undercities of their own. And all of these undercities definitely aren't connected with tunnels, not just through to each one of the cities, but outwards through to areas like Cathay or Lustria or down into the Southlands. The, Could the you imagine beastmen, how ridiculous it would be if there was a super advanced technological race that combined yeah. science and sorcery that lived beneath the entire planet and outnumbered everybody a thousand to one yeah That'd it'd be, be ridiculous. ridiculous ridiculous if their capital was in the very heart of the old world surrounded by human realms who don't really know that it even exists a great capital that definitely isn't called skaven blight and a great capital that definitely isn't the source of some of the most powerful creatures in the world come the time of the old world these skaven so don't exist these rat-faced beastmen so don't go that they definitely haven't been consolidating power after long-term civil war that has been going on within amongst them for hundreds of years because the Skaven almost wiped out but failed uh, all of the Empire and the old world as a whole, but it messed up, so they fell into civil war. That definitely didn't happen either. Loosely speaking, the Skaven are most definitely not the rat-faced, unique, and quite awesome, evil, crazy creatures of the Warhammer world. One of the finest examples of something that's not just wonderful in Warhammer, but is very much Warhammers. It isn't something that came from another setting and they just went, aha, I shall lift that and make it mine and change it into something new. This isn't something that came from history and they said, I'll lift that and take it over. But because the Skaven do come from the north of Tilia, there is quite a lot of Roman influences in many of their designs. You'll notice head crests that look very similar to Roman crests, for example. Um, But for all that they don't exist, and for all that they aren't one of the best things that Warhammer offers, and for all they definitely don't have sorcery science, and they're not one of the most fun factions that exist because they're constantly screwing up, one thing I will definitely say about the Skaven is that I really like them. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, Skaven are absolutely wonderful if they were real. And, and they're real. Uh, uh, th- of course they don't, but uh, there's all sorts of fun <laughs> things with like them utilizing Warpstone, which is basically the hardcore fantasy version of Uranium, uh, which is they, they use it as irresponsibly as you could possibly imagine, which is awesome because it blows up on them often <laughs> and they are backstabbing little shitheads um who everybody loves if they were real because they're they are their own worst enemy which is what makes them so delightful because you root for them when they're losing and you root for them when they're winning <coughs> so uh, to cut a long story short skaven are a host of what appear to be rat beast men and 
they live underneath the old world and beyond. They're split up into a variety of clans, and all of these clans are either warlord clans or they have a specific trait that makes them unique, whether it's that they are particularly concerned with disease and pestilence, or they might be concerned with sorcery and technology, or creating new creatures, or assassination, or whatever it may be. The Skaven have wiped themselves out multiple times with its individual civil wars and come back resurgent. They are all over the world. They are super cool. And do we need to say more? Uh, go check out our stream on Lord Skrulk for some more. Oh, yeah. Lord Skrulk's stream was a really good one. I think it was one that both of us, by the end of it, went, ah, yeah, ah. I was extremely <laughs> thrilled with that one. Yeah, that was a great one. Really enjoyed that. So given that the Skaven have made their way all over the world, and that includes to places as distant as far off Grand Cathay, I think it's probably a good idea for us to pop over towards Grand Cathay because it's time for us to have a look at those dragons, their kids, and the entire empire that they rule. Yes, though I will say one last note about the Skaven. They are one of the most evil, horrible factions, but they have saved the world. Mm. Like, flat out. <laughs> they saved the world once. Hilariously. Um, it's I mean, a they took out, they were the ones that killed Nagash. Yeah, which, hey, go watch the Nagash stream and you'll learn more about yeah. that. Uh, anyway, so Grand Cathay, yes, uh, Warhammer Fantasy version of China, it is used to be very mysterious and was unexplored up until the end times. World blew up, we knew nothing, pretty much nothing about it. Uh, but with Total War Warhammer, uh, Grand Cathay finally got fleshed out fully and is an incredibly fun faction of, it's a very large human nation that is ruled over by immortal dragons. And it originates with one singular dragon, actually technically two, but we'll talk about the other one because she's not technically a dragon. Oh, it's, it's a dragon. Whole thing. It's a whole thing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you have the Celestial Dragon Emperor, who is a immense primordial ancient dragon of unspeakable power who predates the old ones. He is beyond ancient. One of the most ancient characters in the entire setting. Uh, and his name is Shen Yang. And he took a wife who is a alien shapeshifter from the moon, uh, <laughs> named, uh Yin. And if you're like, what? Uh, you can go watch our Dragon Children of Cathay episode because the two of them did have children. They had nine mm -hmm. children who totally are not the Primarchs from Warhammer 40,000. Uh, <laughs> and uh, of these nine children, only five are still around uh, because of the other four, they're either lost or have uh, died. And uh, the five that are still around, each of them rules over one of the cardinal directions with the fifth child ruling from the center and is kind of like the grand administrator of a sort. Because dad and mom live in the celestial city, which is this grand flying city uh, way up in the sky that uh, you can walk to, crazy enough, despite the fact it's flying up in the sky, there's a way to get to it, even though it looks like a horrible trek because it's way up there. But... Uh, they are very mysterious entities, and Cathay is a land where they have a lot of control over magic. They are very powerful in the form of black powder, but they have focused so hard into black powder and magic that they've kind of fallen behind on other technologies. Like, to them, steam power is pretty much unknown, and it's something very, very recent that they're kind of looking into due to their trade with the Empire. But they deal with a lot of shenanigans. Uh, they have the Great Bastion, which is this colossal magically infused wall that protects them from the winds of magic blowing south into their land so they're actually pretty good at holding off chaos they think because the mm. way their culture is designed they have some cult problems especially oh, yeah. when it comes to Xi'an Shi which is the name for Zinch in Cathayan culture because there are many people who fight against the very strict hierarchies 
that exists within Grand Cathay because the dragon children can shapeshift just like their mother can. And they have a lot of human kids. They take human consorts. They uh, have large harems of humans that they con uh, mate with. So there are a lot of human dragon hybrids uh, or more accurately to not mislead you dragon blooded human dragon blooded. So they're human. They're fully human, but they yeah. have the blood of dragons within them, so they live much longer than regular people, and they have a lot of powerful magic. And Cathay is a mm -hmm. land full of all sorts of different magical creatures and living constructs, and we're still learning more about them pretty much every month these days. Uh, it's an exciting time uh, to be exploring the far east of uh, the Warhammer world because it's being fleshed out actively as we speak. Yeah. Agreed. Um, one of the great things about Grand Cathay is that um, it was it's a fine example of what can be done with one of those factions or realms that has yet to be properly fleshed out and detailed by Games Workshop. Um, until Total War actually tackled it, there was pretty much nothing. Um, the previous Grand Cathay as it existed there was nothing there and they took that and they turned it into something marvelous and games workshop has taken what was made by one of their licensees creative assembly um and they've taken that back because it originally was built with creative assembly in mind because the studio built it for them and sent it over um they've taken that back and it will be used hopefully in the old world fingers crossed um so that we can get much more uh material directly from games workshop on that as well it's also worth noting that Grand Cathay is the oldest that we're aware of so far, at least, human realm that exists inside the Warhammer world. It's been going for at least a good 5,000 years. I hope they timeline, though, because it is yeah, a yeah. mess. <laughs> it's broken. It's been going for at least 5,000 years. Um, and it's been going from before that as well, possibly just as Cathay, not Grand Cathay, as a way to try and retcon the issues that are currently sitting yeah, Unifying a country timeline. that big does take time, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, but um, it, this is a, a realm that has been going in some fashion or another almost since the Cataclysm. Mm. Um, because the Emperor himself has been around, kicking about, doing his Dragon Emperor thing pretty much from the beginning and almost certainly had to fend off against the great incursion of chaos and is probably perhaps even the instigating moment of when everything started to become the plan of Grand Cathay that was going to eventually be settled into place. So yeah, it's an ancient place with a long storied history and a very, very powerful top level with some of the most powerful magics that the world has to offer and how can't you love having a whole bunch of dragons in command? Yep. And it gives a lot of hope for the races that have not been super well expanded on. And we're still hoping yeah. to see one day, like the Kingdoms of End, Nippon, or the Hinterlands of Koresh, which would all be very exciting. Or maybe even the mysterious fishmen that live beneath oh, the oh, We have a stream on the fishmen if you want to go watch that one. It was, again, that one came out really well. Yeah, that um, one totally did not feel like a crackpot the, episode. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it, it actually worked surprisingly well. It, did, it was so, fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm still I'm still stunned. So from that, we can then move on to their neighbors. 
um, this is a faction that was added to Warhammer quite late in the day. Um, now, Grand Cathay had pretty much always been there in some fashion or another. However, the Ogre Kingdoms just simply weren't. The Ogres as an army list were first proposed by, as I recall, Graham Davis all the way back for the fourth edition of Warhammer. And they were going to be tying Ogres and Trolls and various other big guys together into some sort of loose conglomeration. That idea kind of got waylaid and pushed to the side. Um, until later on, a couple of editions later, we got ourselves the first Ogre Kingdom army list. And the Ogres were moved from being those creatures that were seen as mercenaries attached to all the armies of the old world to having their own discrete and unique culture that sat right next door to Grand Cathay in the Mountains of Morn. And it's fair to say that they did a pretty big and expansive job. They completely changed the Ogres from the ground up. Yeah, so the original ogres, uh, you, if you think of like, oh, the dwarves live beneath the mountains, the ogres are, they live up in the big frosty tippy top mountains among the elements. They're, you know, beefing it with giant primordial monsters from ancient times <laughs> that, you know, talking about mammoths and creatures that make mammoths look small and giants. And they are kind of these roving bands that like to eat meat and they like to fight. Those are the two things that give their life's meaning is eating and fighting. And they're not quite as destructive as the greenskins. You can trade with them. It's possible to barter with them. They, they can be spoken to, but they're not nearly as, they, you know, they don't build cities. They kind of build up, they'll have like camps they set up and some of these camps are semi-permanent, but you know, all of their structures, if they're going to have them are kind of like animal hide tents or built out of bones. And that's about as in-depth as they're going to get. Um, they're more for taking things and taking what they want because they're bullies because they're big and whoever's big is in charge and who's ever got the fattest <laughs> gut is the best ogre and they're cannibals uh they have no issue with cannibalism they fully embrace it as part of their culture in fact if you beat someone it's expected that you should eat them all of them if you don't finish them then you failed the duel even though you killed your opponent because what a loser that you couldn't eat your entire opponent who may have been bigger than you but uh, they are a faction that their initial implementation was very heavily inspired by like Mongolian themes. Um, and that got almost completely dropped um, an edition later, uh, which was <laughs> a good move. Uh, um, yeah. And they instead, they went a really fun direction because they became something original. Um, yeah. Instead of just being another human culture adapted into a fantasy race they went you know what screw that let's just make them something completely unique and they focused a lot more on what would it look like to have a big um uh race that lives in a completely hostile environment because it's so cold there's so many big primeval monsters running around and you have like the mountains themselves will try to eat you uh, like the mountains literally will have caves open you wander in the cave and then it snaps shut and eats you because the mountains themselves are alive because it's a very magically saturated land but in a very icy brutal theme of just the worst mountain stories you can think of and the ogres are the result of that where they are a race that's very hardy and they thrive in these difficult survivalist situations where if you really like kind of those survival man type antics the ogres are for you and they also are very wanderlusty so they show up everywhere they love being mercenaries and the things they care about are meat and gold because they figured out you can use gold to buy more meat uh and when they show up in cultures the thing that a lot of people love about them is they adapt 
to the cultures. They are very big on if they see something they think is impressive, they will adopt it instead of rejecting it, which makes for some really fun themes where you have ogres in the empire wearing big pantaloons and having big hats with huge feathers because they think that looks super cool. And when they saw that one guy with the Zweihander absolutely kicking ass, he goes, Oi, I want one of those. And he gets himself an ogre-sized Zweihander <laughs> so that he can emulate that guy. Or if they go to hang out with greenskins, they're going to emulate what they see the greenskins doing. Or Bretonia, they're going to emulate, like, is there a ogre out there who has a fake horse that he pretends to ride on and he has a big stick that he thinks is a lance? Yes, I don't care what anyone says. That ogre <laughs> is out there somewhere. Um, but they're ridiculous and fun. There are ogres that have been to Nippon and seen the effectiveness of how skilled their ninjas are so the ogre adopts that style of fighting where he makes he gets throwing stars made for him that are ogre sized and they use katanas and wear stealth clothing and they're actually stealthy that's the scary part they can learn impressive skills so um ogres to uh sum them up are this species of all 10 to 12 foot tall enormous humanoid type creatures with huge guts and uh, a massive gut is very much a point of social status in their society um, they uh, live in a society where might pretty much is right and they are pretty dim as well but, let's say that they're not classically intelligent they don't yeah, really understand the concepts yes they don't understand the concepts of art or reading and writing or any of that nonsense um, they're far more simple and direct but they are exceedingly skilled hunters exceedingly useful and capable mercenaries the concept of pit fighting um, two people dueling inside a lord pit as others watch on comes from the ogre kingdoms and actually spreads across the world from them and becomes the gladiatorial pits of Tilia for example mm -hmm. so you'll find that culturally they have also had a significant impact upon other parts of the world for all the word culture and ogre does not necessarily come si side by side ogres are often seen hand in hand with noblars which are small goblins with giant noses. Um, it's also worth saying that halflings and ogres are very close. Now, I'm going to move up one level as we turn our language to saying genetically. They are very close, and halflings tend to have very good relationships with ogres, assuming they don't get eaten. Um, and that relationship means that in the empire, halflings tend to have completely cornered all ogre work whether that's mercenary work or using ogres as laborers or any equivalent, you tend to find it's a halfling gaffer or a halfling foreman that's um, the one that's controlling them. And there's a reason for that. It's because the old ones created them both at the same time from a similar stock for a, a specific reason. Some people believe that reason was because they had foretold that the coming of chaos was coming and that halflings and ogres were made to be somewhat more resistant to chaos. And it's fair to say half ogres, for all they do mutate, are much more resistant to chaos than most. They can wander around chaos-infested places or places filled with warpstone, which there's many problems with that over in the Ogre Lands and beside the Ogre Lands, without a great deal of side effect. And even when there is a side effect, their culture does not see mutation as necessarily a bad thing in comparison to all of the old world where mutation is seen to be the influence of chaos and thus evil. Yep. And there are... that. Pretty much concludes all of the main races. Uh, yeah, there pretty are much. We covered all those realms and factions and yeah. stuff, haven't we? 
there are so many things that we did not even slightly touch on that could oh. be whole things in themselves, like the Famir or the Dragon Ogres, which there's a whole mm. video on that you can go watch about Lorebeards, or Trolls um, and a bunch of other crazy species scattered about the world. But those are those are the broad strokes, so to speak. Yeah. So in broad strokes, let's just give a quick summary here. Somewhere between 15,000 to 10,000 years ago, silver ships brought the old ones to the Warhammer world. They took the Warhammer world, this fated place, and they changed it. They shifted its orbit and moved it closer to the sun, taking a world that was in an ice age and turning it into a world much like our current world in terms of its climate. The Warhammer world itself is larger than our world. It's got a sun that's larger than our sun. Its orbit is longer. Its days are longer. But in general feel, it's very similar to our world. A great cataclysm occurred. And the old ones, who by this point had used their sorcery science, sorcery science, their sorcery science to uplift many species, including the lizardmen in particular, that they largely created from whole cloth. Uh, <clears throat> all of those species were suddenly left without the old ones when the cataclysm erupted, destroying the gates to the north and south poles of the world. The old ones left, and all their species that they'd uplifted were left to try and deal with chaos suddenly flooding the world as magic came through these great gates, as we discussed earlier in the stream. Eventually, this war comes to an end when the elves managed to construct a giant vortex of magic that siphons magic from the world. This magic is then siphoned continually by the elves towards this vortex to ensure that chaos can never be ascendant again. That's it. We're done. However, 8,000 years of warfare follows because chaos isn't done and the influence of chaos upon the world never comes to an end. The core theme of Warhammer has always been the order of the old ones and then the successive races afterwards being destroyed and pulled apart by chaos. Order versus destruction, so to speak. That core theme lies through everything that then happens for the next 8,000 years-ish. Eventually, after multiple attempts, uh, ever chosen, a great champion of chaos called Archeon rises. He goes through a host of prophecies and the four chaos gods put aside their differences and agree to support his attempt to bring about the end of the world. And that is the event that is very wildly known in uh, Warhammer terms as the End Times. The End Times happens in terms of the Empire, 2,500 years approximately after Sigmar first became Emperor. It happens some 8,000 years after the Great Cataclysm occurred. It happens some 10 to 15,000 years after the old ones first arrived. And that's the entire span of the timeline of the Warhammer world. And at the end times, Archeon manages through a host of extraordinary feats to destroy the world, largely because of the foolishness of many of the people that were involved with the defense of the world. So the vortex falls. The various factions that should have been working together collapse into infighting, and Archeon plucks victory from their idiocy. The Warhammer world comes to an end, fragments, time itself is distorted and dies, and eventually the Age of Sigmar forms out of that much later. 
For those of you out there wondering where the hell did the Old World game come into this, the Old World game is set approximately 250 to 200 because it's got a bit of a, it's almost certainly going to have a timeline leading up to. We do, we do have a start date. You probably have a start date. It's 2276. 2276. So So it's uh, almost almost exactly exactly 250 years. Yep. Uh, 250, that's exactly what I was expecting. There you go. 250 years before the destruction of the world. And it's also approximately 30 years before the next great incursion of chaos, the second last one, where Azavar Kull, the ever-chosen of that era, will attempt to destroy the world. And he goes down through Kislev. And it's going to be good. To do so. And that's going to be all manner of fun when the old world eventually depicts that. They've got 30 years worth of history to wander through first. And given by just how much all those games have been sold out since we've been watching on, I'm pretty sure that the old world is probably going to be a success. Other than that, that takes us from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. We've discussed all of the peoples. We have missed so many things that we could have said. Because as we said right at the beginning, this isn't scripted. This is us just talking it all out seeing where it lands we have had a whole host of questions so i think we should probably turn to those do you agree yes yeah let's hop into all the super chats and stuff thank you all so much for your patience uh we really really appreciate it so we're just gonna fire through these uh youtube chat uh recognized we ragged on twitch chat too hard last year so we got you a late xmas gift it's cole you gotta dig it up yourself for sending you to the mine (laughs) (laughs) i do love how youtube chat love their um pals over on twitch yeah on this side thank you so much for the generosity thank you so much michael uh if not already discussed this what is the name of the warhammer planet itself it has been dubbed malice eh, eh, not quite though um the age of sigmar dubbed the bits that survived uh, yeah, as that so, yeah so the world malice. itself has never strictly been named so um, in, got... i will say in total yep. war warhammer bellacore calls it malice Oh, interesting. He does have that, a that is interesting. That. They've used it. That is fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, it got called the fated place in a couple of things that um is used. It's um often given names that are somewhat simple as a, people attempt to use an equivalent of Earth. Um, but the mm. problems with that is that the most common one that you would expect them to use, particularly for the old world, would be Terra. Hmm. Yeah. That causes some 40k issues. In my own games, um, for my empire-led ones, I've often called it Erd, because that's just the German for Earth, and that'll do just fine. Um, yeah, but, and, and that works fine. But in truth, it doesn't have a name. But if Malice has been picked up by that, I'll be super interested to see if that gets picked up by the old world, because it very well might do, because there is a missing component there for properly naming the world. It would be a very odd choice, though, I think. Yeah, well, because isn't that like Latin for hammer? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, stupid. but uh, no, it's not. It's not <laughs> Malleus. Malleus is hammer. Yeah, um, Malleus is just basically yeah, bad. It's, it's very close. It's basically um, bad. Oh yeah. Also, I should have said uh, at some point during our whole thing. If you're wondering where the name Warhammer refers to, the Warhammer is Galmarez, which is Sigmar Heldenhammer's big hammer. Sigmar Heldenhammer's uh, Warhammer 40k does not have a Warhammer. I don't know why they still call it that. They need a new name. <laughs> <laughs> Get off! Get stop using our good name, you losers. Get your own. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Jonathan Scott Slanesh says, "Wait, I thought this was Warhammer Fantasy Stream." <laughs> when does the juicy bit start? Poor Slanesh just got educated instead of getting the tea. Um, Sean Nurgle says, "Did you enjoy my gifts?" <coughs> I did. Freaking not. Being ill over Christmas sucked. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, good old asshole Slanesh. CEO of Necromancy. Hey, Andy. Got, uh, great to see you back in shape. Finally started Lawhammer. It's incredible and so immersive. Also, oh, thank you so much. The best. 
For any of you who don't know, Lawhammer is my actual play of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the game that I helped design. Um, we play that every single Friday and do it's drop so in enough that you fancy. It is over on our channels here. It's literally the critical. And if you're listening to this and you never heard about it, it's such a good place to have fun. Like watch through it. You're going to learn a ton. You'll also learn some things that are heretical and not true, but uh, <laughs> most of it's good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's a lot of fun. And there was even an ogres, my Lord line for those of you that are total war players. It's a hysterical scene. It's, it's <laughs> really like ripped out of a comedy moment. Oh, that was fun. Um, Alan Oxus, uh, who got more slaves, dark elves or chaos wars? I would say dark, dark elves. elves just because they have a bigger empire. So they got Damn more straight. slaves. Work. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, still loading. Wow, I'm here late as always. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Glad you got it in time. Uh, CB4N, pitch for the MCU. What if the Hulk met Greenskins? That would honestly be a nightmare scenario because the more fighting there is, the more Greenskins are drawn in and the more like amped up they're going to get. And they would probably just start worshiping the Hulk, to be honest. <laughs> like they would keep fighting him, but they'd he'd be, be their new warlord. warlord. Yeah, he would literally yeah. just become the new warlord. Yeah, he'd just be their warlord. He'd be the new war boss. He'd basically be Planet Hulk. Isn't that like the whole point of Planet yeah. Hulk? Is that, uh, yeah. Anyway, Laughing God, New Year, New Lord Bears, you rock. Well, thank you. Hey! Very generous, very, very generous from Felipe Roque. Really appreciate it. Andy, glad to see you back. So happy that you recovered. Very generous super chat. We appreciate that so much. Uh, Mandantis, back with his 8888. Oh, uh, uh See, Happy New Year to all. Recognizing this special episode, a, celebra a celebratory eight times eight to everyone. May everyone's Warhammer endeavors, Lore Hobby or other, be fruitful and fun. Thanks, Andy and Sotek, for the upcoming year of Warhammer Goodies. Well, thank you for the very sweet message and generous uh, tip. Thank you so much, dude. And uh, thanks for dropping by um, our streams the other day. It was super nice to see you commenting over on Twitch. Uh, CP4N, you now owe us a week-long Empire Marathon stream. No. <laughs> it would probably take longer than a week anyway, yeah, let's yeah, be honest. Even, I, don't I, I could take a day per Grand Province alone. I, I Honestly, I don't think we could do Reichland in a week. No. Like, maybe, maybe like Hawkland we could do. Or like Ostermark or Oslin, like one of the kind of, but yeah, it would be even like, then, there's so much. Reichland and Midland, not even close. Yeah. Um, Hammond, what composer is Mazda Mundi's favorite? Johann Sebastian Bach Bach. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, it's going to Ma continue. Mazda Mundi listening to Bach Bach. Uh, Hammond, oh, he's back. Uh, what did Gore the Rock Johnson say to Andy Law? Glad to have <laughs> you, Bach Bach. Fuck it. <laughs> Gore let's move on from those <laughs> thanks very much Hammond is the lady really the ancient widow from Kislev yes thank you Hammond uh, moving on <laughs> totally absolutely <laughs> yeah uh, therefore yeah uh, she might as well be uh, she's everyone else luring lion how's the computer coming along Andy hashtag right, right down there it's working fine Um, it's not hooked up because we're still waiting for this room to be um done because I can't move my other one out until that's done we've got insurance people coming uh, it's, I think it's this week actually this week coming so Ooh. I'll be able to um chat about that hopefully a bit more by then if it ends up being delayed any further I'm just literally hiking this computer over into another room and my wife can deal with it <laughs> Lindsay, it's Lindsay's problem back again uh calling the nl equivalent the wasteland nl nl the equivalent the wasteland was one of the few times there was justice in the warhammer world i'm dutch i get to make that <laughs> oh netherlands uh, okay the netherlands equivalent. oh shit you're making me cough um fuck pardon my language but yes um you were allowed to make that joke i, I most say, certainly i'm not i have nothing against the dutch but I nope. hate whenever I have to crack open a Marienburg thing because the names are fucking insane. 
there should not be that many consonants next to one another in a word. I can't oh. read it. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, quite. Uh, Dutch is it's a fake language. <laughs> CP4 this one's for you, Sotek. Uh, yeah, no, ha- no, Hammy. The lady is Krimlo. We talked about this. Oh, the frog legs, fucking Krimlo. Uh, uh, her, Herlam Hura. Thank you very much. Uh, you guys are the yep. best. How did you decide to do the podcast together? Love from Denmark. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, mm. uh, the TLDR was I actually did a lore video talking about the constellations, and I mm-hmm. quote did a direct quote of something Andy had written. Mm-hmm. Uh, for fourth edition, or actually, I think it was from before that, but it got republished. Was, in fourth edition. Yeah, it was republished in fourth edition. Uh, and I even had like a voice actor do it, so it was all fancy and shit. And he liked it on Twitter, and I was like, Holy fuck, you wrote that. We should chat. And he was like, Sure. And the rest is history. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Hammond, Sotek, why don't you say your T's? I say beasts and forests instead of beasts and forests. Because listen, that T between those S's is fake. All right. It's, it's, you have to go <laughs> beasts, out of your way. Forests. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, no, forests. it's not fake at all. The, the Scots in me is. The, 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 <laughs> <laughs> listen, I, I listen how the Brits talk. I don't want to get any shit about leaving out letters that are supposed to be there. Okay. They are way worse. <laughs> On the side again, uh, triple. Uh, Re Beastman, the most fantastical part of fantasy is that the Anprims are a credible threat. I don't Anprims? know what an Anprim is. Neither do I. Sorry, on the side. I, I know he's in chat. I, I see him in chat, so I'll keep an eye out for what an Anprim is. Okay, cool. Uh, Godzilla twenty twenty one. I'm hearing a lot of heretical Skaven propaganda right now. Skaven are great. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yep. Uh, Ryan Woodall, a few minutes behind, but concerning the topic with the dragon children having children with humans, how is that possible when earlier said the other races could not have mixed race children? Remember what he said, though, caveats about magic. Uh, and also, they're actual shapeshifters. They become human. Yeah, they're not They're not yeah. shapeshifters in like the sci-fi sense where it's like, oh, it's not really that thing it's pretending to be. Mm-hmm. No, they're real shapeshifters. So when Absolutely. they look human, they are human. And can procreate oh. as human. Uh... It's a joke. Omnicide says that's okay. It's a joke for the few people that'll get it. All right, so we're not, we don't we don't get to know what the joke is. <laughs> okay, Omnicide <laughs> passing notes in class. Uh, Inquisitor Quinnage, a Syrian, be praised. Uh, lo- trying to learn the lore as fast as possible to run my own fourth edition game on my birthday. Oh, marvelous! A load a lot easier. You guys rock. Well, thank you. We really appreciate that. Uh, also, check out Lawhammer if you want to learn a lot of really cool shit about 4th edition. It's a great way to learn, and it's super fun to have on the background while you're doing other stuff. Um, Czar94. Gotta go, but I look forward to watching later. Have a good night slash day, everyone. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, sweet message. Super chat. Uh, uh, Niels missed the start. Does can- Oh, this is actually a really cool question. Does cannibalism generate dar for ogres like it does for humans? If not, why wouldn't it? Thanks for the fantastic stream. That's a kick-ass question. Uh, the 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 off the top of my head, the thing I'm gonna say is that I think humans genuinely associate a negative connotation with cannibalism, which kind of draws in the dar, the desperation, uh, a lot of the death and stuff. That's not to say the ogres don't. I think the ogres do, but a ogres are more resistant to a lot of the aspects of what comes along with dar, and b I think a lot of the negativity that humans subconsciously or otherwise associate with cannibalism makes it worse i'm not going to dispute that that seems a pretty good answer to me but it also could be that nagash cursed it for humans that's also potentially possible which might explain why ghouls didn't exist necessarily before nagash um that's a great question that's that's a fun thing Mm. to i yeah so you just just went past one uh tyler for next 
Tyler, uh, thank you guys for what you do. Lord Beards uh, is one of the highlights of my week. Glad you're feeling Yay! Good. Question, can elves be demon princes or vampires? <laughs> can elves be demon princes? Yes, that is an established part of the lore. As to when it occurs, and there's all manner of answers to that potentiality, but there's nothing that says they can't. As to vampires, I have various swear words I could deploy here. The answer is no, but you know the rules could always be stretched. But generally, yeah. m the vast majority of sources say that no, elves cannot be vampires. Yeah, um, yeah. vampirism is a human condition. But, and you know, sometimes generally. the workshop just says fuck it. Uh <laughs> Indeed, and some of the older sources do have vampirism popping up in some unexpected ways. Yeah, which, to which I say fuck that. Vampires should be human uh, only because otherwise it gets weird. Uh, Aaron, question: Has any orc fallen to chaos like in forty k? Not that we know of um generally the chaos gods have nothing to offer orcs that they that gork and mork don't offer them better yeah. um and could it happen i guess has it happened in a source i've ever read no i mean even in the end times when they were playing really loosey-goosey with it no orcs fell to chaos um so seems the answer is new what are your favorite imperial provinces and why um I'm kind of a basic bitch. I really like Mindland because I like all the wolf theming uh, and I really enjoy Mindheim as a city. It has a lot of really fun mysteries to it. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. So I'm a, I'm a Mindheim slash Mindland boy. That's really hard. I've written about all of them and <laughs> I've edited text and all. I've done. This is really, it's like choosing between your babies. Um, Okay, if I had to choose one, um, I'll choose one as a favorite rather than my favorite. Um, I have a lot of exceeding fondness for Ostland for a variety of reasons, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but gosh, that's almost impossible. Sterling gang rise up. Yeah, y'all have to have gangs. You can't afford anything else. Poor Sterling. Uh <laughs> hey, Ostland's not much better. It's just this poor. Yeah. Uh uh, oh, Aaron, thank you very much. Very generous, Aaron. Thank you so much. Love your streams, fellows. Always keep the nice beards. Also, in your Malekith video, you said that when the elf goes through hard times and finally knows their place, like Teclas and Malekith, my question is, does that apply to the dwarfs as well? My mind goes to Thorgrim. I'm trying to sort out. Aaron, hopefully, if you're still here, feel free to clarify this in the chat. So the thing that i'm trying to connect this to is i think what he's saying is uh <laughs> i think he's trying to the, the only thing i could think of is that like teclas and malekith like really mm, i'm not sure what this is asking oh so, aaron if you're still out there um your second sentence also in your malekith videos you said that when an elf goes through hard times and finally know their place like teclas and malekith i'm not sure what you mean with that bit um and that means that i can't answer the question at the end um i will say though that generally speaking elven psychology is quite different to dwarven psychology elves tend to have high super high emotion that they're attempting to channel funnel control in a variety of ways where dwarfs are dealing with their extreme pride are dealing with their a deep sense of honor and are also dealing with a host of stubbornness issues that they have so they are going to be tackling their individual problems that they've got to overcome and also their past as in the events that are influencing them in very different ways but that doesn't mean that they won't end up arriving at a similar conclusion simply because they've got there through different routes but again i'm not quite sure what you're saying there so i find that's 
a little bit difficult to answer. Apologies for that. Yeah, if you are ever in a chat again, uh, feel free to just like say something. Yeah. I will keep an eye out for your name in the future because I would definitely love to answer that. Hammond Chainsword Forty K. That would be a more appropriate name. They 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 I can mean, have that <laughs> Yeah, or Golden Throne Forty K or whatever. Golden Throne. That just sounds like a fetish. Uh, <laughs> Bill, thank you very much for the super chat. Bill, you rock. We love you. Message, but appreciate it. Uh, Slained. After the end times, what happened to the green skins wherever the old ones picked them up? Oh, that well, that's a hilarious question because we don't know. We don't know where the green skins came from. We don't know if the old ones made them on another planet and then accidentally brought them, or if they were native to another planet, the old ones accidentally brought them. We have no fucking idea where they came from. <laughs> At the moment, we only have a single line in 8th edition that pretty much says the old ones accidentally dropped them off. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, like they, they're literally just an invasive species because one of the old ones was an asshole and didn't properly go through customs. Other than that, we have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, like we don't like, you know, we don't know if it's like 40K where the old ones created them or if they were a natural species that just accidentally got brought somewhere else. Um, uh, Cole, are the trolls an old one made race or pre old one race? They are pre old one from most sources we have because they're not green skins. They're, they're distinctly different from green skins. Um, yeah, they appear to be a species that either um, were already indigenous to the Warhammer world and continuing on. They haven't been uplifted in that they haven't been given the extra intelligence that has generally been provided by the old ones to the species that they developed. Trolls are thick, um, really, really thick. So it seems very unlikely that they were um, an uplifted species by the old ones. And that doesn't mean that necessarily they weren't tinkered about with at some point in the past. They might have been, but there's no proof that they necessarily were. So one would suggest that they are probably not that. But um, the trolls as a species, if they are a single species that are manifesting in multiple different ways according to the magics that they're being infused by, stone trolls, river trolls, or whatever else it might be, that does suggest that they are magically sensitive in a way that few others are because they are consistently expressing as their species changes they into something else. They are freakishly adaptive. Like suspiciously yeah, totally. adaptive. And, th and there is a certain suspiciousness to that. So I reckon if you were looking for a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay game, for example, to try and build a story around that, you certainly could and potentially build something really quite interesting from it because there is definitely something a little bit sus about the trolls and I'm sure you could come up with a good story as to what exactly that was. And it doesn't need to be old ones. It could be almost anything. Oh uh, Yeah, I mean, hell, you could take it from an angle that they're almost like a more purified chaos race because they're so mm. adaptive and they seem almost have a natural inclination towards magic and chaos, which is Indeed. weird. And you get chaos trolls as well and they're nasty as yeah, yeah, super fucking nasty. Yeah. Um, and that's before you think about Throg, who's smart, which makes him fucking horrifying. Uh, see mm. beforehand, don't forget to like and subscribe all for Queek. Yeah, we're so close to Queek, guys. We're so we are. We only need what about 600 and something. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, subscriptions on this channel right here. If you're on YouTube or if you're on Twitch, I mean, still subscriber over on Twitch, but right after, head over to YouTube and press that subscribe button. Uh, buck, buck. Yep. Uh, <laughs> glad I was able to catch my favorite Sunday stream again. Yay! And there's a couple of super chats that came in that I want to grab real quick off Twitch. And I know there was one I saw at the very beginning, but it's so far back now. I can't get to it. So I saw it. Thank you. Whoever that was. Um, but, uh, Biofoot, I can thank, access it. Uh, thank you to YouTube chat for thinking of us on Twitch. Your mere presence and radiance was more than enough, but your gift is received with a warm and happy heart. Oh, good old Twitch chat being all sweet. Uh, let's see. Uh, Biofoot, you heard it here from Andy. Trolls are thick with three C's. Yep. 
Uh, time restraint. Uh, <laughs> hi, lads. Welcome back, Andy. I know Sotek would agree. We missed you. Quick question, given all the old world hype. Could you see a connection between... Oh, this is kind of a fun question. Could you see any kind of connection, do you think, between the sepulchral stalkers and this, the Naga of Koresh? I mean, for Total War, it's a pretty great rig to use. Uh, I will say from a Total War perspective, if they end up doing the Naga, it is very likely they will use animations that they can from the sepulchral stalkers and the... Uh, oh God, the Necropolis Knights. Um, but I do like the the question kind of idea of do I if there would be any relation between sepulchral stalkers and the Naga because they are kind of an interesting design uh, as far as like what the Nehekarans were thinking of when they made Snakemen constructs. Um, I mean, the Nehekarans did trade. Like they traded with Grand Cathay. They yeah. traded with the High Elves. It's not something that's talked about as much as it should be. Um, but like they traded, so maybe they encountered the Naga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could go with that. Uh, I turned Twitch into a toad for our power. <laughs> oh no, they got Fae Enchantress. <laughs> oh god. Uh, Holy Artist, is it possible that the Famir is a race from before? Uh, the Famir are heavily established as a pre old one race. Yes, they are. They are a um, primordial OG race. Um, although it's worth saying that that is lore that has changed more than once. So it's likely to potentially change again if somebody attacks it. The Famir are a species that have definitely been um, rewritten um, according to the needs of the time. Yeah, So, but according to the most recent stuff, which was Monstrous Arcanum in 8th edition, Storm of Magic in 8th edition, and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th edition, they are pre-Old One. Mm -hmm. All right, we got caught up. Thank you all. We're way over time. <laughs> Thank you all. Oh, we're, not, we're not as bad as we could have been. We're not as bad as um, we could have given, been. Given the nature of that. Yeah, we did. Um, uh, I would also like to say an enormous amount of thanks to all of you, particularly those who were offering me thanks for my good health. Uh, it was, oh my goodness, quite a tough new year. And I'm so very glad to be on the other side of it, back with the bestest of folks over on the other side of my screen here. Um, it's always an absolute joy to be the good lore master. Um, I would also like to say an enormous amount of thanks for putting up with us for three hours and 20 minutes, I'm going to guess, approximately. Mm. Is that where we yeah, are? Around the um, yeah, indeed. Um, we attempted to cover everything. We're fully aware that there was a host of things that we missed, but the, the aim of this was for us to have a relaxed chat about it, not for us to just sit down, tap it all up beforehand and read it out. It's much more about us sitting down and having a good discussion with you all as to what everything is. And I think we nailed that pretty well. Okay, real quick, uh, Aaron, uh, uh -huh. clarification thing. Uh, what I'm referring to is in both the characters, they, they went through hardships and pain, but learned what they were, their true place. Like Malekith learning that he needed to be the Phoenix King to go through that, and Teclis learning his place among the elves. How do we do we feel Thorgrim went through a similar experience? I would say no. Thor Thorgrim's no. a very different case. Thorgrim, <laughs> the best way I can explain Thorgrim, in my opinion, is that Thorgrim is a character who looked at the fact that the dwarves were failing and he he came to a conclusion on how to fix it that to be frank is wrong um that thorgrim became obsessed with the idea that if they could strike out every grudge if they could right every wrong that would set things right and really what he's doing is kind of like embracing their doom but at least trying to go out on like a high note <laughs> yeah uh, thor i don't know if in your life you have ever met someone who is exceedingly stubborn and impossible to deal with 
that gets something into their head and no matter the logic presented to them, no matter the good sense that's laid at their feet, they won't change their mind. They are absolutely certain of their correctness. And that, in many respects, is the problem with Thorgrim. Um, he has come to a conclusion, and he is king, and he is right. And whenever someone comes to him and says something as an alternative, it will be rubbished. He's almost the exact opposite of what the elves have done in this particular case. And that's not to say that elves have it right and dwarves have it wrong here. That's just simply to say that these elves came to a conclusion that was different. Elves are mercurial by nature. They are emotional. They are somewhat changeable. Even if they have fixed thought patterns, they still have fixed thought patterns that are wildly shifting because of their emotions. Dwarves are quite different in that. They follow fixed paths and they're rigid. So in this particular case, as much as it may pain me to say it, because who doesn't love Thorgrim? Thorgrim, in this particular case, is exceedingly stubborn. Get called out, Andy. <laughs> I know someone's really stubborn about Gelt. literally no idea what you're talking about, because any right-thinking person <laughs> thinks that Gelt is an absolute get who deserves to be roundly attacked from all angles. Yeah, Aaron, thank you. Uh, Hammond, I, I have an idea for that uh, later this week. Um, hmm. All right, so uh, last things before we go. Um, Real quick, uh, if you haven't already, please, for the love of God, subscribe here on YouTube on Lawhammer, which is where you're probably watching this, and follow, of course, if you're on Twitch. Uh, please, please, please support Andy. He needs it. <laughs> he I needs do. It. Look at me. And <laughs> um, um, might I also say, in return, if you haven't already subscribed over to Lore Master of Sotek, I do have to ask why you've been watching us for weeks now. Go subscribe now over on his YouTube channel. Do the same over on Twitch. And hell, pop over to his Discord and jump in there as well. If you haven't done that already, you are quite clearly insane. Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, there's actually like stuff going on. Old world shenanigans are happening. Uh, it's a very mm. exciting time to be a Warhammer Fantasy fan. Um, so in light of that, I, I can't give any dates or anything, but there may be some bonus episodes of Lorebeards coming oh, yeah. out in the near future on uh, about things that we wouldn't normally cover on Sunday. Because like we don't want to dedicate like a, lore, a Sunday lore stream to talking about old world like stuff. Uh, yeah. That's not lore related. So uh, keep your ears and eyes open for that. Uh, really appreciate the amount of people that turned out considering the kind of short notice of uh, getting all this locked in. And uh, we're very, very appreciative. Tons of y'all showed up. Like it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah. It's so been lovely. Thank you all so much. You're the best. Yeah. Uh, we're going to bounce. So thank you all very much for watching. Thanks for all the super chats and everything and the support. And we'll see you when we see you. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.